I got a story for you. Nothing better than a dude. Hit me with your dad joke! Getting to know you, Pod? We don't fuck around with gender bias. I don't even know if we acknowledge gender. Getting on her, do you see what we did there? Or his grind. Climbing the ranks of an industry. Maintaining their creative vision while being able to earn dollar dollar bills, y'all. All through their art. And avocation. Word of the day. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. AndrePsyche.com is the cute, quaint, corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original merchandise you had no idea existed because Amazon and Bezos have you brainwashed, bitch. Go to AndrePsyche.com and check out his literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, podcasts, anything. And if it's not there, Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, and he will whip something up for you. Send him some details about a creative custom gift that you would want for someone you care about. Go to AndrePsyche.com. See what speaks to you, because each and every item has a story behind it. Nothing is just made. Everything is created on AndrePsyche.com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You Pod. Do us here, the hardworking staff at the Getting to Know You Pod, a favor. We need and appreciate your support. Take a moment right now and push the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever application you used to listen. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the Getting to Know You Pod, we would very much appreciate it. We know what you're wondering. How else can you support this fine local podcast? Thanks for thinking of that. You can go to our Patreon and search getting the number two, no, the letter U pod, and become a subscriber for as little as $2 a month. You can also friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And finally, you can support the pod by becoming a sponsor or finding a sponsor slash advertiser. So if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world. Like literally someone in France is blowing, or I shouldn't say blowing, downloading the heck out of our podcast. Got to remind myself not to curse too much too early. And all across America, I think we're in 48 states at this point, well over 3,800 downloads. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know Zachary. Zachary is coming to us from New York City. And Zachary is um a pretty fucking talented director, man. Thanks, uh, Zach, for... I think we rescheduled a bunch of times and I thought 
that you were going to ghost me very politely, but you were like very persistent in rescheduling. And then I kind of guilted you. You overcomplimented me. <laughs> I felt like it was <laughs> awkward, um, but we've been chatting for like five minutes already, man. And um, I've just enjoyed it. So thank you, man, for taking time and coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, oh, thanks, man. I was really looking forward to this and thanks for being so flexible. Um, I like your podcast a lot. I, I really enjoy the conversations you have with everyone and the swath, it's, um, the swath of yeah, people. It's a privilege to be part of your 85 and counting guests. Right. Thank you. Oh, dude. Thank you, man. Um, and just, I guess his background, we had a day or time, I both, we had a day and time set up and then, I, so you're currently shooting a film. No, I'm not shooting a film. Um, so what I have, I have an avocation and a vocation. My avocation is filmmaking. My vocation is television producing and, uh, okay. um, and I'm do I've worked on some documentaries and, uh, all kinds of projects. So the bread and butter is not the glamorous stuff. It's stuff that people see. Um, but it's not necessarily something that I'll create from, you know, uh, like maybe your, uh, your something mind. I would always put my signature on. Gotcha. So but it does pay the bills. So, man, that's so the reason I and I hadn't thought about that, but that's that makes sense now. So, the reason we had to reschedule is because you were like, hey, man, just got like a permit, or hey, just found out I have a shoot at this spot, or hey, yeah. and um, which is totally understandable. But the interesting part to me was like, you just didn't know that's like how it works. How all of a sudden it's like, hey, man, we're going to be on this street at like 4 30 or whatever. So, be there kind of a thing. Um, and that, do you deal with that well? Or is that like the inflexible or the, like, I don't know, flexible schedule? Does it drive you nuts? Or is that like an invigorating thing for you? Both. <laughs> uh, so one of my friends who also does this work, he's been doing it for a few decades. His name is Chris Pereira. He's a good friend. We just worked together on this project. He said, because I, I work mostly in documentary television, meaning stuff that airs on, you know, basic cable. And it's stuff where you're suddenly uh, told uh, a few days before you're going to be in going to Kansas City or you're going to be going to San Jose or Dallas or whatever. And um, he's always said, uh, you know, put your helmet on and get into the cannon and get shot off to another place. <laughs> Such a good so fortunately the place is New York city this time. So it was just a few blocks away or 15 blocks away. Sometimes it could be a, a, you know, a different time zone, but yeah, it's invigorating. It's exciting. Um, and I think uh, whatever we do informs, you know, if we're, we're creative, that experience, it makes, um, our perspective on the world richer hit me and, with your dad jokes um, you know, all, why don't you hit me with your dad jokes hit me with your dad jokes wow i hadn't thought about I, it, this again is why i love doing this just getting perspectives on things i had not ever and now i feel a little bit shame considered the people who actually shoot the shots that I get to lay on my couch and comfortably watch. <laughs> and you know, like, dude, like you watch any documentary. It's not like they're, they're typically not in like one isolated part. You're not staying in one little town and then neatly going, you're fucking going everywhere. It seems like getting shots everywhere. And I'd never considered the people who actually had to go take that shot and the scheduling and the logistics behind that. Thank you. Thank you for your work. <laughs> oh God. It's just nice to be working these days. You know, it's tough out there especially in entertainment with, 
you know, we're, as we're recording this, we're still, you know, still pretty deep in the COVID crisis and the entertainment industry is figuring out like everything, how to move forward. And if you're in production, um, you know, you got to be there and you got to find a way to do it safely. And, uh, those, um, opportunities are limited. So it's just good to, good to have opportunities to work. Yeah. Man. I'm in, um, so I'm a teacher in education and, um, oh, okay. yeah. And it's one of those very similar things where, uh, I was a little freaked out, you know, because you're like, if it's virtual, is the tide going to swing from the public tax paying from the tax paying oh. public that do we need these many teachers if kids are going to be at home? Right. Do <laughs> I'm teaching my own kid kind of a thing. And you just start wondering about your job security and then people losing their jobs and your job is paid for by other people having jobs and paying taxes as a teacher. Um, But I had heard it was just murderous when COVID came out, especially out in California. Um, People just getting furloughed and laid off and because a lot of them are like independent contractors. Am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, every, almost everyone is, you know, there's, a, you're always, it's always a temporary project, right? I mean, almost always. I mean, there's long-term series where people are staff. Staff is just a really rare, rare bird. And even with uh, staff position, there's a lot of turnover in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that the landscape has changed. Like a lot of industries, it's, it's, there's a lot of disruption because uh, the model has changed, um, you know, what I had done a lot of, you know, had, had been, um, the model had been basic cable. A lot of people don't have basic cable anymore. They yeah, I feel, stream their I content. I feel old because so. I do. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. But like, of I just, like, I yeah. when people are like, are you a millennial? And I, I was born 81. So I'm like right on the line. So I had, I, I lived without internet and I lived with dial up, you know, and lived with cassettes and everyone who's fucking streaming and knows all the cool sites to find all the free movies and shit. I get so jealous. Cause it's not me. I'm like, nah, man, I still gotta go to HBO. Like I still wait for showtime to get it. And I feel like such an old man because of it. Oh, I, yeah. It's, I mean, if you, I prefer basic cable, but because I just, it's a little clunky, all the apps oh, and sure. um, sites to go to. Yeah. I just like having one place, but if I could cut the cord and have that same experience, that was internet based that's the way to go for sure. You just want the less, you know, you want less cheaper. friction is better, right? I mean, you just uh, want that ease of experience of, of watching content. Dude, for me, the, I, it, it's funny how cable didn't pivot to a better on-demand model. And I don't know if it was because yeah. they had too much content or if it was like the legality right. of having the channels and whatever contracts ran with it. But the on-demand yeah. is the definite. Like I remember Netflix sending the CDs. It was like eight bucks. Yeah. You got, you know, two CDs or I guess they were DVDs. And you, know, yeah, right. you can play them and then return them and all that. But yeah, it's getting to the point now where I don't know if cutting the cord really is that much cheaper than having cable and paying for the, all those channels. It's just the fact that it's completely on demand. And if you have solid internet, you just like, it's amazing how quick Netflix scrolls through all that product. It's amazing. Yeah. It's just not standard. I mean, if it, it, it would be just, if, if there were to been one venue that all the big players could have agreed upon, let's say that was iTunes before Netflix, you know, right. Cause Apple was the biggest player in media. If you, we remember they had iTunes, that was music and movies. That was like, you know, a lot of stuff has always been pirated, but everybody would, would 
migrate one one place and they they kind of lost that crown That's and now they have apple, they have apple plus they're kind of coming back yeah because amazon but prime like you think of amazon movies prime. it was amazon prime prior to amazon prime yeah well amazon prime's great they treat creators a little i mean just my experience in amazon prime has been positive but but the the thing is i think there's just this war of the big media companies not wanting to share a sandbox and competing. And I think the result of that is this competition for eyeballs and, and, you know, people's um, subscriptions Right, is creating the best content, the must see stuff. That is the positive side of it is that, you know, Disney plus has the Mandalorian. I haven't seen it. I heard it's great. It makes me want to get uh, Disney plus. Right. And um, all this uh, stuff where, you know, I, you're thinking, okay, I got to add Hulu to the subscription base. I've, you know, I've got to add this because of that content. The ultimate um, advantage to the consumer is that there, there is this competition that the content has to be threshold. The quality has to be so high that you would think of adding another $9.99 or whatever, $4.99, whatever yeah. the cost is, that subscription has to be worth the price of admission, so to speak. And does that trickle down? Is that trickle down economy go to you? Like you just got one hell of a pay raise, man. Because if people could see you, they'd see you in this three piece suit. I mean, it clearly (laughs) looks tailored. Yeah, right. (laughs) No, dude, we're both in like t shirts. I remember (laughs) the last time I wore a three piece suit. Gosh, it would have been a wedding or something. I don't know. Um, Rented or bought? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I think here's the thing. I, I'm not a big shot. I, I'm. I make movies that I pay to to make. You know, they're they're low budget films. I do it myself, with with people I tr- you know like and trust and and have um, the same kind of ethos of just making it happen. I'm not someone that ha- I don't have an agent as a director. Oh really? Um, no, uh, and I don't have as an agent as a as a television producer either. So um, you're negotiating and- like your own contracts and everything. Right. For the TV work, it's much different than the film work. It's um, many times, I'd say 99% of the time, it's a project that, or 90% of the time, it's a project that's already either the contract's done with the venue, which is a television network, okay. and they're crewing up. And I'll either you know, supervise, produce, meaning I lead a team of producers and editors, or I'll be one of the producers, depending on what comes down the pike, you know, work-wise. So that you're kind of filling a position and you're applying your experience and maybe you're also applying, you know, your um, network of people you can bring aboard to a project. I was but, about to ask. So you think yeah. you're just getting passed around like almost like word of mouth or you go yeah, to like yeah, indeed.com like, and you're just steady putting your resume out there? Yeah, it's like being a merchant marine and going to the hall and waiting for what <laughs> ship comes out, you know, like in a way. Um, but then there's also development and there's non-broadcast stuff, which is great too. And a lot of a lot of us are um, doing that it's stuff called branded media, um, corporate videos, events that are being um, filmed because of COVID that normally would be attended by you know a group of people. So there's all kinds of stuff it's not glamorous and it's not the stuff that usually people talk about in an interview that are filmmakers but it's a reality of for me that's how i finance my films 
is the work I get. Mm. And also the experience of you have to be scrappy when you're working in television. I, I work in mostly non-scripted. I've done some scripted stuff, but it's called non-scripted. It just means the story happens in front of the camera. And when you do that, that just gives you a skill set that you are open to the experience of capturing a performance when you're, you're writing something and you're filming it and you're thinking about what's really necessary to capture a scene well. And, you know, when I did nothing without you, we had a very small crew, you know, single camera, <clears throat> a lot of natural light, you know, if light was, you know, we did light everything. Um, but a lot of it was the, the key sources, natural light. Um, and how do we shoot as they call th- how do we light for 360? Meaning, how do we li- how do we set up the lights so that if the camera and the performers want to go to this corner, we don't have to set up again quickly for it. That mindset of how do we kind of stay scrappy and how do we get the most of our time on this set without sacrificing quality? How do we still light it nicely? How do we still frame it nicely? How do we still, you know, have the art direction there? But that kind of idea that when you're making documentary film or documentary television, that you have to think on your feet quickly. Yeah, My first jobs like were doing, I'm like, sorry, was uh, that? No, no, but I'm just saying like when you're doing that documentary stuff, it's like you're actually, you don't know what's going to happen. Where if you're a film director, you're, you can, what is it? The little blocks, the storyboard where you kind of yeah. have like an idea, right? Or is, or am I just stupid for saying that? No, no, you're right. You're a okay. shot. It's, it's a storyboard is, is the, that's the best Prime way to go. Method, right? So yeah, like you have an idea, you can sit there, you pull up on a set or a scene and you're like, okay, I'm sure you have a vision of where people should stand, where the camera would look good, blah, blah, blah. The documentary, whatever, if you're documenting drug use or heroin addiction, you don't know where a junkie is going <laughs> to roll to, right? You don't know if yeah. a cop's going to pull up, you don't know if you're chasing or whatever. So right. that would, I could see that being in that kind of work, just paying dividends for independent filmmaking where you have to adapt real quick. Yeah. It's liberating too, in a way, because then you have a sense of confidence that, Oh, that's great. You know, you can, you can do it. You can do it with a shot list. You can do it with storyboards and you can also in a way, um, almost improvise the coverage, how your coverage, meaning like how you're covering a scene with your camera. But the, um, the first jobs that I got that were paying were working for a company, actually New York time zone, but they weren't related to the, it's kind of neither here nor there. It was called New York times television. And they produced <laughs> these shows that were about medicine, particularly trauma and emergency medicine. And there was a show called trauma life in the ER about 20 years ago, a little more than that actually it started, but I started working on these shows where, you would have these small cameras that were kind of new to the scene. They were called three chip cameras, meaning they had one chip for red, one chip for green, one chip for blue. Meaning the reason was, you know, a camcorder before that would have one chip and it would be really good for, it was a camcorder. Well, when they had these three chip cameras, you were suddenly broadcast quality cameras that fit in your hand. And the people that hired me had this great idea that, we have these broadcast quality cameras that are so small that don't really need you, require you to light a scene. What if we brought them into a hospital that gave us permission to film people coming in in the most dramatic uh, t- 
time of their life when they're experiencing a, a traumatic injury or right. sickness or needing surgery. And that was the that was that show. We would be sent to a different hospital or city and sometimes in the back of an ambulance and get the story from beginning, middle, and end. And you had to think quickly on your feet. You had to be and have an idea of where do I need to stand to you know, one, make sure you're not in the way. I was about to, to say, dude, you bumped someone at the wrong time and you're just like, oh shit, sorry, didn't mean to unplug no. it. <laughs> on the cards, right? And, it, and it's also, it's also, you know, you have to, you have to be a human being, you have to be compassionate, you have yeah. to think about, okay, what, you know, is there a balance here between telling the story of the medicine and telling the story of the patient and the doctor and with the doctor or nurse or the PA or whoever's, um, Working, you know, you're thinking about the beginning of an end. The first time you're meeting this patient, just before HIPAA, this has changed now. Of course, HIPAA okay. is the law that protects people's privacy and various things with medicine. But HIPAA we would only always came get around permission. 20 years. HIPAA? What's that? Hip? Like there was no HIPAA 20 years ago? HIPAA came around in the early 2000s. Yeah, 2000, what? Three, How four, the hell something? does it take that long to figure out my medical information should be private? Well, <laughs> like, okay, okay. So I'm getting into some deep water here <laughs> no and I'm, we're theorizing dude i'm not saying you're a medical yeah. expert i'm not blaming you or anything i'm just right. shocked i had no well, idea before hipaa was enacted the idea was that nothing would be aired until we had permission and the idea was back then that we were called either producers or video journalists and that what we were filming that the this wasn't my argument but this is the idea that what we were filming was this equivalent of a of a journalist notebook and that the footage we were getting would be destroyed, but it was gathering, you know, the story, so to speak. And without the permission of the patient, and if the permission, at, if this patient was able to tell us to stop, we would. That's not the case anymore. Hmm. Um, any medical show requires, um, you know, uh, a complete uh, conscious um, participation by the patient because of the idea that. There isn't this uh, concept of a writer's. Anyway, I'm going down a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, but, no, but that's um, yeah. It's just it's interesting because I did think when as soon as you said permission, I'm like, so then does the patient own their image even though they are going into a hospital? Is it the hospital's decision, right? Like it's almost like if yeah. you're caught on a security camera, do you well, own your image on the security camera? If it's these are good questions, and in a way, we're talking about not ancient history, but it's it's no longer kind of relevant to how things are done now. But back then we also had a release book where we asked permission, you know, we had them sign a, an, a, an agreement that yeah, okay. right. gave us that, I, that right to use their image. And it was surprising that most of the time the patients, um, you know, we would, we wrote, we would ask them about what we were doing and say, if it's okay, can we continue filming? And if the time, you know, when you're comfortable, we could show you, this form and the four, I would say eight out of 10 times they would sign. Wow. And it would, it was, it was interesting because I mean, one is I think that people want to tell their, they want their story to be told, particularly if they can participate in it. Hmm. And usually when the time you're, you're asking someone, this is applies to documentary film in general, whether, you know, is this bygone era of, of these medical shows or stuff that's done now, is most people want, you know, especially in the most traumatic time of their life, they want to have authorship of their story. And if you are interviewing them and having them talk about their experience, 
more often than not, they want to do it because it gives them a sense of meaning of their, I don't know why, but, um, it was, uh, it was, uh, at first kind of surprising to me. It's been something, and I'm nowhere near your sort of level because I think I've made a hundred and three dollars and fifty cents on this podcast. So I'm congratulations. Only, you're in the you're in the black. That's no, good. definitely I'm you're in the red because I've put out two fifty. Um, <laughs> okay. So if anybody wants to pity Patreon me, feel free. <laughs> um, but you're that's, working in the right direction. You're getting there. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but something that's been amazing to me and I found myself with a little bit of that dilemma is again, especially later at night where you get two hours in. Yeah. I don't know if people forget that I'm recording because a lot of times it's just audio and there is no video. So it, uh, most of the time, like we see each other, yeah. but it's a lot easier to get real in depth. I found for people, if they're almost just sitting alone on a chair, on a bed talking. And right. I, I'll even have to like, I've reminded a couple of people. I've been like, you, like we are recording, man. Are you cool with this being in there? You know, like, are you cool with getting this personal about your life? But I think what you're saying is true where they want, they feel almost empowered by getting whatever they're going through out and it makes them feel better. You know, they'll, they'll message afterwards. They'll be like, God, that was awesome. Thank you for listening. Thank you for asking questions. Thank you for not judging. Thank you for just letting me say what I wanted to say. And I, I've been very surprised by it. Well, what is your, because uh, I've been listening to your podcast, what is your um, manipulative attraction? Yeah. Why, why podcast? And then after you did it, why, what is the, is that, is that the uh, reward for you? Is that you're, you're telling these stories? What is, um, what do you enjoy about this format? Um, no, the reward would be selling for 1% of what Rogan did and just making 150 K. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. That'd be so schmucky. Although I wouldn't turn it down. Um, no, the so it started with COVID, and it was an idea that I had pre-COVID that I've kicked around. Um, I don't think I'm interesting or an expert enough to make the podcast about me. Like I couldn't get on and talk about something. Um, I don't have a ton of editing skill to make it interesting. I can't produce music notes. I don't know if I could find people, experts to come on and talk about topics. I just I grew up bartending. I teach. Oh. So I grew up in restaurants, bartending and waiting tables. So I've kind of, since the age of 14, had to just walk up to complete strangers, um, try to develop a rapport, make them like me to give me money, right? Because that's what you do for tips. Yeah. But also like listen, anticipate needs, and you just meet a bunch of people. I live in a touristy area. So the idea was just like, it. I came across Humans of NY actually. Um, Kristen, guest 29, had told me about Humans of NY. And that's just like this guy taking pictures, finding out people's story and posting them. And I'm like, that's actually this idea that I've had of this podcast, getting to know you, man. I think it'd be pretty neat. And having an excuse to talk to people like you and finding out about all sorts of professional, like I just posted an episode with a drag queen from Hawaii, like public access TV drag queen. You're like, did, <laughs> did, did four hours. And I'm like, when else do you get to sit down, talk to and get some insight into drag queen life or there was a, a sociologist from london who was telling me about experiments and you're like oh shit that's how college works over there and that's like how things happen or julio was a gay dude in west virginia that's working at three jobs at a pretzel factory just trying to make it and yet that's not my life but it gives you a lot of empathy you know so i don't know if there's um an ultimate 
payoff. I just kind of thought it would be a neat idea to do and see if you could monetize it, but see if it, if people got into it, if people wanted to just get to know different people, different perspectives, different cultures. So again, I guess you're, there's curiosity about people. You, you generally have that curiosity. Oh yeah. And that, and that these um, podcasts or you talk about humans at NY, these are sort of like portraits you're doing. Yeah. And I, I feel the long form, I really enjoy Joe Rogan. Um, I enjoy Bill Simmons and they do two, three hours Joe Rogan do three hours holding his breath, man. Like the dude's just amazing with his breath and knowledge for as stupid as he calls himself. But I do, I like the long form conversation because it's easier to edit, to be honest. It saves time and I'd rather put the time into the person more so than the product or the edit. If that, like I'd rather spend three hours talking to you and an hour and a half editing than condensing your three hour conversation to 45 minutes with whatever, four hours of editing. You know? Yeah, you never know where things go if it's not too scribed or too um, cut down, right? It just becomes a free-flowing conversation and things kind of can go wherever they, they'll go. Yeah, and- there, there's, no, there's no parameters, yeah. man, you know? And um, it's, I don't know. So I, I like the idea of the humanistic aspect of just conversating. Originally in my mind, I was going to walk around and like wait at like oil lube places and be like, Hey, you look interesting. Getting your tires rotated. You want to jump on this pod and talk a little bit? Um, you know, and just the idea of you're in public a lot and there are people who are alone and everyone's on their phone and it's, you feel very isolated in social media. You don't really know these people. You, you see pictures of them. You see what they're quoting. Maybe you, I mean, how long would it take to read someone's post? Like 20 seconds. But there's no conversation. There's no interaction. So my whole thought was like, it'd be really neat to almost go around and just start talking to different random people at opportune places. Like if you go to a bar and you see an old vet sitting at a bar and he's wearing like, these vets have all these like war hats. I have no idea what the war hats mean. I know they've been on a ship, but I'm sure they got hella stories and they probably want to tell those stories. So I was going to be like, hey, man, I got a laptop, two computers. Can I buy you a beer? And tell, (laughs) tell me about that hat. Like that's how initially it went in my mind. Um. COVID hit. Uh, and then I was like, fuck, I wonder if I just messaged people on social media and would they Brilliant. actually come on? So just started randomly messaging people. And this well, is, lucky me, I'm glad you did that. This is where uh, we're at. You reached out. Yeah. It's, uh, what, um, yeah, that's one of the things I like about your podcast is that you go, you, you, you get to enter, you feel like you meet people and then they just, give you inside baseball on their profession, whether it's like the hairstylist she had on there. Oh yeah. Sandow. That was great stuff. She was talking about how she manages difficult clients and that story about how the, the woman who was really rude to the students she yeah, was working with student. and how step-by-step step she went through that. I was thinking you could apply that mm-hmm. to anything. You could apply that to, you know, directing a, a, you know, pretty big budget film where you're having all kinds of challenges. You could apply it to almost, you know, like if you had that patience, that's awesome. And I like, you know, the political uh, figures you have on there too, talking about the inside baseball of like how to, how a campaign develops from, from nothing, like, you know, and how, how things are, uh, how things are developed, how, what, yeah. The scenario is politically in Delaware. Like all that stuff is just. Um, yeah. Cause you don't get that if you don't yeah, have no. a podcast, like I'm not getting 
who I think is going to be the Republican candidate, Julianne Murray. And the other candidates were great who came on. People running for Congress, Senate. But like, she's not going to fucking talk to me for three hours. But if I can record it and I can put it out there and like, I was amazed. Like, you're amazed at how intelligent they are. But they always go on radio where they get like two and a half minutes. Right. And then it's ad. Right. Or you get a TV interview and I don't know how long those things are. Maybe you've done them where like you record and then you're like, why was the interview only three minutes? Yeah. Or in the paper, um, the, our local paper, Cape Gazette. And it's actually part of how I got into, a, I guess, a slight partnership with the Cape Gazette where they let me post the podcast on there. But um, one of the authors like interviewed this dude running for um, state Senate for three hours. And it was like a 800 page or 800 word article and you're like i want to hear the three hours man like i want to know what the conversation was i want to have that ability so like that was another part where i'm like it just the podcast allows you access almost like behind the scenes kind of stuff you feel almost like an insider with people and um i don't know it's it's neat it's interesting because you get that way as a teacher too you get inside you get very personal with students and parents real quick i'm amazed at how many parents you meet them for the first time and they're in tears man and they're like helpless. They don't they don't know what to do because of life situations. And you almost turn into a counselor and now you understand why things are happening. And a lot of people don't get that. They just see a jerk of a kid and they're like, oh, that kid's a jerk. And then you talk to the parent for 10 minutes and you're like, oh my God, that poor child. And the mindset flips. And that, to me, that's always been super powerful to, for perspective, to understand. You got to take time to understand. Which subjects do you teach, Sean? Uh, reading. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a reading specialist middle school yeah that that must be uh, a powerful connection you make with the students and and their teachers you really such a i, I imagine it it just um you're reaching these kids it's such a the middle middle school you say right yeah i'll do they're they're wild animals they're hilarious because because <laughs> puberty's the puberty is the spectrum that you just can't right. anticipate and prepubescent to postpubescent I see them, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. You see this sixth grade child, and all of a sudden, you're like, "Where are you? God, you're a, you're, you're like a, you're a man. You know, you're completely yeah. different." And they they find out who they are, and you're kind of there just supporting them, being trying a bunch of different shit, finding out what they're into, and you you don't want to make them feel awkward for trying things because that's how you find out who you are. Oh, are you gonna be the class clown? Keep cracking jokes. Oh, no one's laughing. Maybe you should stop being the class clown and be like the interesting comment guy the intellect try being intellectual and you know then kids like find that and you're like okay cool they they know their tribes and their roles it's Mm. yeah you're watching kids find their way yeah and maybe uh kind of shepherding them a certain way exactly it's like guiding water you know you're not building dams you're almost building like flood banks where you just don't want them to overrun and become wash off like you're like dude our goal is to keep you focused yeah yeah. let me build something i I think i would i would probably drown no dude it's (laughs) it's great see and i don't i don't usually enjoy doing that because that was 11 minutes on me but it's got to be the same if you're in charge or you have a vision a teacher has a lesson plan right hey man at the end of the day end of the week, I want you to know this. This is my goal for you. Has to be the same thing if you're filming something. You have to have a vision when you get on a set and you're like, I don't know how it's going to happen. And that goes almost to um, you being just fluid with it. You're like, but we'll figure it out, right? Like you just, I have a vibe. Teaching's the same way. You just get a feel 
you know how the tide's rolling, you know how the wave's going to crash, and you don't fight it, you roll with it, and you channel it. Well, I think uh, when you're working um, with a dramatic script, it's um, it's a, it's very much like a blueprint for a building, a lot of people say. It's like architecture. And the foundation of that has to be sound. You have to know. You read it. When you read a script, you know it works. You know if it's going to hold the weight of the walls, floors, all that. You can tell when you read it. And the actors in this crew can too. Within that, you know, especially if you're doing a lower budget or, you know, ultra low budget film, you always have to have that flexibility to pivot whether something falls through or you want to get more out of your time and your money and your production value. You have to think quickly. And even the highest budget films, from what I understand, do this too. Is there has I love to that. Be, You're like, from what I understand, never been there. Yeah, I don't but do high budget films. Maybe one day, right? <laughs> I'd like to. And you got to, you know, aim for that. Like you aim for uh, a Joe Rogan experience kind of level of for your your thing. You have to think about that. <clears throat> just, just point, just point one percent, just point one percent of the hundred and fifty mil that he got. <laughs> Yeah, but you, uh, but you're you're probably listening to how he got there, and you're applying that to what you're doing. Yeah, imagine, right? So, yeah, you've got to you've got to have a plan, and there's some things that just cannot change. There's some parts of the story, parts of the script that are load bearing, so to speak. They can't be moved. Uh, that makes sense. I hadn't they're thought true. about that either. But that it's just like a house, man. Some walls you can't yeah, knock down. Like a house. Yeah, like any kind of story, you just you need them, and. Either they're they're important for carrying the weight of you know making the plot make sense, or they're you know when you're working with an actor, I I, I like the actor to internalize the story based on what's there and ask the actor or actress or actor I just use for both male and female I don't know yeah is there an ambiguity um, how do you say the yeah, words? ambiguous I, I term? I, I think I just say actor for either gender, and I it, it just it's you know yeah um, that's what I I don't know yeah I don't that's, know if there's a right woke way to do it I, I don't I've know been either. listening right with the whole like gender consciousness and stuff like this sure. you're like how do you but identify it, as an actor it's true it's it's a job that that um that is uh it's you know it's acting it's it's a it's an incredible thing that I can't do and I, I have incredible reverence for anyone who can do it well because what you're doing is you're internalizing something hmm. you know you're internalizing a, not only just a story but you're creating a world from the written page and from conversations and sometimes if you're basing it on a real person you're getting to know that person and you are creating something that is your mind and your 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 body and your memories and all that kind of thing so but what I'm tr what I'm saying is sometimes from what it, where there's a script, I'll, I'll ask an actor, you know, let's talk about what's on, what's true here. And what's true is what's on the page, right? What they're saying and what some of the, the you know, what, 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 what's been written and what can we deduce is real here. And then from there, you can do an adjustment or a variation. What if, you know, but um, not every actor likes to work that way. And I haven't had, you know, a lot of experience working with actors, but that's just how I like to, to, to do it. I like to see what's working and I try to step back and, um, and then, and then give, you know, adjustments where it goes because that, that's just an example of like rigidity sometimes can be good, but 
for a living performance is just that's just not like what I like to do. I like to I like to let that let that be and let that live. Yeah, that's um that's a relationship when people watch a movie. I wonder how much they think about is you have a vision, right? And then the actor can have their own vision. And then lack of a better term, you get in a pissing contest about how something should be shot or tone, intonation, yeah. facial sure. expression. Like my mind goes a million different ways just from a middle school play and looking at a middle school yeah. director arguing with like a 12 year old girl. Well, <laughs> She's like, no, this is what I think should Peter Pan should be doing. You're like, wow. That's the same thing. It happens, you know? Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot at stake there. I mean, it, it's a, it's a student, it, it's a, it's a play. It's a film. It's a student film. It's a you know five hundred million whatever a hundred million dollar film. Yeah. All the same things apply because there's so much at stake for the people doing it. Yeah. Because you it's know your it's not just it, the and... film that the director has made or co-written or whatever. It's um, for some people it's the highest stakes there is because they've invested. You know, there it's them up there, right? And so you got to understand that. But I would say one thing I I, I learned from. Um, I went to NYU and after I went to school there for film, I, I worked there to, I had just a great experience. I, I continued working and I would, I would sit in on grad film classes and, you, you know, can sort of continue my film education while I was working there. And one of the things they bring in these directors, these working directors, Arthur Penn came in to work with some um, film students who were um, about to, they cast their film and they were about to shoot. Arthur Penn directed Bonnie and Clyde and um, a few other, you know, great films. And he has this background in the actors. You work with actors, studio actors, improvisation. You really admire it. You know, you really like the improvisational actors, that that thing. And what he did is he, he had a, a director come in with his actors and block the scene in front of the, you know, theater and just say, okay, where, where's step, you know, where are your, where are your lights going to be uh, block it, all that stuff. And he had the, <clears throat> yeah, the actors perform. And then afterwards the scene was over. He asked the director, how did that go? And the director said, yeah, it was almost there. I don't know. We need to run it a few more times. And they said, okay, that's great. Have a seat. And he asked the actors, <laughs> what did you think of that? Yeah. Uh, it was good. Um, I, I think I, I think I work on a few things like, no, no, no. What, what didn't work for you? Forget about the director being here. Forget about the film students being here. What didn't work for you? And they were just a little more, you know, honest because they wanted to please the director. Yeah. They hadn't quite started shooting yet. And they, you know, for all they know, they could be cut. Right. I mean, mm. there's this sense of you got to protect yourself or to, you know, artistically. And so they, but they, they let their guard down and they said, here's what I don't understand. Why am I saying this? Why am I here? Why would I be at this Cal? You know, like all these kind of questions came in the other, the other actor was like, yeah, I agree. I, okay. He said, okay, so here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to forget about the, the blocking. I want to forget about the where blocking, meaning where the actors stand at certain points for certain lines. So I want you to forget about that and do the scene again. Forget about us being here. Just do the scene again. And the actors did it. And they, they were, you could see they were gravitating towards those marks the director gave, <clears throat> but the performance everybody agreed was better. And then he talked to the act director again. He says, yeah, I see, I see something coming here. I see some, you know, I see, um, this is getting better. Okay. That's great. What about the actors? Yeah, I still, I, I still don't quite get it. And he said, all right, I want you to forget about 
every line of dialogue. I want you to forget about every <laughs> preconceived thing you have about this scene. Run the scene. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, and they did. And it was the essence of the scene. It wasn't necessarily what they would want to film. Some directors like to film this. But it was liberating for the actors. And Arthur Penn said at the end of it to the director, look at that. That was magic, he said. And the director quietly nodded, said, you're right. That's what I want. But it took him a while to say that. He just observed what was happening. And, and then what I got from that is, you know, not every scene should be directed like that. And that's not how every act, director would work. I mean, I, I don't know that Stanley Kubrick would do that very often. Or maybe he, he does have an improvisational quality from what I understand it, he did for, you know, in his films. But the idea was that you allow, sometimes you are, you are, um, you are m the most um, able to make sure your plan is going the best you can when you're have this pass when you're passive <laughs> right. in a way and you let down sort of some of the architectural plans go keeping the load bearing kind of walls in place yeah. to open things up for everybody well you're because trusting also a professional I think that, yeah you're right like so, and it can be scary and i i hadn't thought right. about this either but if people are auditioning or acting out so i also coach middle school basketball and oh, really? everything you were saying is exactly the philosophy of middle school basketball. Like I don't go into a season being like, this is what we'll do. We have tryouts, we identify strengths, weaknesses, and then we see what kids can do. And then we're like, how can I put you in a position to succeed? That's kind oh, of the philosophy. Really? And um, okay. when you're talking about pulling back, the load bearing wall is there, right? Because it's like, hey, man, we got to establish the conflict in this scene. But you got to trust that you made the right choice in actor, actress, to fill the void that you're going to step back and create, which can be kind of scary because I would imagine most directors are kind of like control freaks. Yeah, <laughs> you would almost have to true. be just to get shit done, right? Like there's so yeah, many guess, variables. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could say control freak. You could also say you have to care yeah. a lot because you are going to put an insane amount of work right. to get it finished. Yeah. So yeah, you you just you you got to have that mindset. But uh, but I'd be curious to hear what you, you meet you when you coach these kids. How is there this openness and this plan? Because things have to work, right? You have to the you play hope. has to be executed. How are how are you able to have that improvisational element? That and I like has I, the balance there. And I'm gonna, and I'm gonna speak, speak as if I'm an actual coach and. I like to mock myself because I'm a middle school coach and what the fuck is a middle school coach? I've, I've spoken to um, some D one coaches. Um, I've spoken to uh, guys who have trained NBA players. I've spoken to um, people who establish like training programs and I'm nowhere near on their level. But one thing that is in common is you're not on the court. So it's super important for not only you to know the kid's strength and weakness, but for the kid to understand their own strength and weakness, the player. So I've found sometimes that you just have to let the kid fail. You have to suck it up, eat it up. You have to set up a situation almost where they're going to come to a realization of, oh, that's not good. I'm, I'm one for 10 on jumpers. You're like, yeah, hey, hey, man, you're one for 10 on jumpers. Your team just lost by 12. Remember when we do these layup drills and you really don't care? <laughs> um are you scared to go in and lay up? Is that why you're shooting all these jumpers? Cause you're not making them. And we kind of got to put the ball in the hole for you to stay on the floor. So 
how are you trying to put this ball in the hole? Okay, well, I really like the jumpers. Yeah, but you're one for 10. And now if we go right-hand layups, man, you're what, eight, eight for eight. So maybe we can work on the up fake. So when we do these up fake drills, can you care? So that we can get you to a spot to score. And then when we're doing jump shot drills, are you going through to game speed or are you just flicking it up? And you just try to put the onus on, hey man, you have the opportunity to get better. Are you yep. taking advantage of it? This is your strength, right? Or what's your goal? My, okay, well, my goal is to have a jump shot. Great. Are you there yet? No. Then we probably shouldn't be taking them in a game. Do them in practice all you want. And that that's... Uh, the empowerment, the relationship, the communication would seem to be, you have to establish that trust. And it seems like the actors and the directors, there would be that awkward like dating courting period <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> do I trust you? Do you have my best interest in mind? Are you putting me in a way that speaking from the actor's perspective, it would be like, are you putting me in a position to succeed or am I going to look stupid on camera? I would yeah. feel that's a huge fear for them because your name's there, but it's like their face and their words and like it's their next job how people take what they did anyway I, like I, i've never been on a set never really spoken to a professional actor or actress but like i feel it's very similar to a sports athlete having to trust a coach sure yeah i never thought in those terms but absolutely yeah you have to put them in a position to succeed and maybe even have the conversation like you're having because you you're you sounds like what you're you're allowing the kids. You're having. You're asking them questions that you that you have the answer for. Yeah, oh, right? dude, that's the you're, only reason you ask a question. Like one of the yeah. sayings I love asking is, "If the answer was no, I wouldn't be asking the question." <laughs> <laughs> so if a kid looks at you and they're stupid, I'm like, "I'm gonna give you a hint, man. If the answer was no, I wouldn't be asking you the question." <laughs> kind uh, of a uh, thing, you know. And but yeah, the, but I think that's what someone with a vision, who has to spread that vision out, who has to take this abstract concept and make it tangible, make it visual. They have to be good at that, right? Like to be good at your job as a director or a coach or a teacher, you have to get buy-in from the people who are producing. You're not the one producing, even though you're a producer, <laughs> you're not the yeah. one on screen, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, <clears throat> I think um, it's also a really exciting time to make movies and, and, and television and, and YouTube videos and things that are, that have a, you know, a narrative thread to them beginning, middle, and end, because um, now in, the, in our, there's, there are no barriers between you and making your film. And that's really in this 21st century, you know, we have these cameras that are cinema quality that look just as good as, you know, most people would agree. Some people would argue not, but they look just as good as the cameras you would thread, you know, expensive 35 millimeter film through like a sewing machine and have 10 minutes of a reel that you can, that weigh a couple of pounds that you can hold in your hands and run for an hour and a half. You know, for example, if you wanted to, and you can be as, um, you can be as uh, you can work out a masterpiece if you want of choreography of you know of of, of blocking of of uh, shot design or you can just shoot wild and see what you get. The point is that this is a really exciting time for people who want to do it. Yeah, and um, I, I was just I, I, was I can't believe you shot nothing without you with one camera. 
Like I had no idea that you did that thing with one. That's a talk about a money saver. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, we shot that on a camera that was, you know, that changed everything. It was called the Red One, Red Digital um, Cinema is a company that make cameras are a big player now. But back when they first started, they had a camera that was $17,500 for the base. And oh thinking God. about it now, that sounds like it is a lot of money. However, the alternative was <clears throat> there were a couple video there was Cine Alta and there was, I don't think Ari, Ari really had their camera that was uh, really useful, but it was film or it was this camera. And <clears throat> uh, Deborah Granick made um, a winner's bone with it. I remember in an interview, she said, it's the yes camera. <laughs> what that camera did is that brought down the barriers. When you have it, you're shooting digitally, you don't have to change mags, magazines of film. Okay. It sounds like a little thing, but there's, there's a division of labor that's needed with a, a film camera. You can do it on your own. We did it with American Chain Gang, where it was just me and an AC, and sometimes I didn't have it. An AC is an assistant camera person. But there's there's this, um, you can just see right away, as opposed to having to put your film through a chemical bath and processing it and oh, making yeah. it. That was the game changer in Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Burt Reynolds. And you don't have to slander yourself oh, by yeah, the video. Okay, I see what you mean, right? Yeah, he yeah. Was, dude, he was fighting it like crazy. He was like, no, like, this is what we do. And it like killed him because he failed to embrace the technology. Uh, yeah, well. I, I don't know why that's the most outstanding part that I remember from. Well, I remember one other really big thing from Boogie Nights. with your dad joke. I fire away. But, Is that your favorite Paul Tam Thomas Anderson film? I didn't know Paul Thomas Anderson made it. Um, I, I, so sadly, and I need to get better. I, it's not like film is not like authors. When I read books, I'll remember authors and I'll gravitate towards them because I yeah. enjoy their writing style. I don't do the same with filmmakers, man. It's like a film for what for the film. That's good. Yeah, I look for more the plot, more so. But I think it's a lot of my own ignorance because I don't. I know I can enjoy a good shot like, like nothing without you i like the style of like the close face-ups it was very intense and it, to me that added to the intensity of the movie and i was like oh cool but i don't know if i'm ignorant to the subtle effects of what a director actually imparts on a film but i am aware of dialogue plot choices and how that affects my engagement in a film does that make sense makes total sense and you know the the you, you know, film, film is an, a lot of things. It's the most immersive, uh, you know, I, I see it as an art form, but it's, it's entertainment and it, it, films were made to entertain people. And if you have a different level of appreciation that could either distract you or it can open it up for you. So it doesn't matter. You just, you know what you like and right. a film is supposed to be something that you know, is you, you, you watch it cause it entertains you or transports you or, you know, whatever on a deeper level, you, you like it for something maybe you, you think about it or you don't, or it's just, you know, makes you laugh. Right. No. Yeah, so, exactly. Like, it, it does it, something emotionally to you that you just enjoy yeah. that emotion being brought out or enhanced in you. But they were made to sell tickets initially. Right. <laughs> and directors and producers were aiming higher and higher to create a higher, what they call, you know, production value to make their films or their studio uh, stand apart from another. And that's kind of what's happening with the streamers, right? They're, 
they are, I mean, a lot of it's intellectual property. It's, you know, Star Wars versus DC Comics versus, right. you know, all this stuff that is competing. But the, the same thing applies is the, at the end of the day, it's more, you know, everyone's trying to create more entertaining work, but they're also trying to get something innovative, something that's never either been seen before or something that's been seen before it's been done in a new way. And that's the story of, you know, the visual medium of, of, of film of whatever it's called now. Right. Yeah. Is right. That, <clears throat> and that's what I think a director is attracted to is, you know, how he or she can bring something, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but how can they tell a story in a new way that is gripping and, and fresh, uh, pushes the envelope in one way or the other. That's, that's the challenge. I think that it, it really <clears throat> attracts a, a director, producer, writer. I'm really curious about NYU college and how impactful going to a film school was on you. Like does NYU help you to be more creative or does NYU help you? What did you call it? The avocation and vocation. Yeah. I loved it. Like did NYU basically make sure that you could always make money shooting and then you just kind of get these little sprinkles of cool creativity or did it really enhance your creative thought process and how you present your visions? That's a really good question because that I am a professional. <clears throat> I had a view of it before I went and I had a view of it during and I had a view of it after and and it, and it hadn't changed that much. What I huh. understood of NYU was in a way a contrast from other film schools. NYU a lot of times was compared, and there's so many more film schools now, thank God. Um, but there were uh, fewer uh, when I went, and there was there was the biggest one was the big two were USC and NYU. UCLA was big, and Columbia was big too. But USC was more of a, you know, it's an in it's in it's in Southern California. Yeah, right. It's in the industry town. So there was this um, kind of uh, idea that the students there would read the trades, like the Hollywood Reporter, you know, like they'd be very focused on the industry and their craft and the specialization of, you know, I'm a director, I'm a producer, I'm a cinematographer, yeah. and this is what I'm studying and this is what I'm going to excel at. And, and almost the network, you know, I would think too, like the networking. benefit, you would go out there and you would try to get whatever internship or you would hope to come across these particular right. people. Yeah, and it was very focused on the business. Yeah of Hollywood because you're there and there were, um, and that was, you know, practical in a way, but also you're, you were exposed, you know, there's Lucas and, and Spielberg were, were very involved in the development of what USC is now. <clears throat> so there was, there was a sense that, you know, you, you, you're not getting a, a pass to the next level. You still have to start over, but you're really getting an idea of the lay of the land of how Hollywood works from, what you're studying to who your professors are to kind of the direction of the school contrasted with NYU, which was more of, you know, you think of Martin Scorsese and mm. Oliver Stone and, you know, some of the alum that, um, Spike Lee, you know, he's very involved still that oh, really? there was huh. the sense of New York versus LA in a way that make the film, you know, think about it's, uh, getting it done more sort of focus on, you know, the artistic merit, not that you, I'm not trying to say that USC and, and 
was, I was about to say it when you were explaining it though. I was, I can be the guy who's shady because I don't work in the industry. It seemed like (laughs) it did it. it, When you were describing it, that's immediately where my mind went where like NYU would be about the art and use or USC would be about the business, which makes sense because if the majority of the business is where USC is, it would make sense. Like, dude, it is a business at the end of the day. Right. Well, I'll give you an example. Like if if you do a thesis film and this may have changed, but if you do a thesis film at NYU, Anybody can do it as in the film program. You just have to get into that. You know, there's there's a there's narrative one, narrative two, and then there's I forget the thesis class that you would do. And almost anyone who's wanted to get into it, you could. You can direct a film, or you can be specialized and say, I really want to focus on cinematography while I'm here, editing. But everybody wants to be a director, pretty much. That goes to film school. It's I mean, the power. Do. You want the smart the power. ones are more specialized because they can get work right out of college. You know what I mean? Uh, but um, but whatever we what NYU did also for me is give me a false sense of confidence that you can do it because the difference between that that when you got your thesis film done is you own the film because you paid for it okay. and at USC there were only a select few that got to direct their thesis film they had to get approved for it and then there and then the negative was owned by USC it was in a vault. So oh, they owned it, wow. right? Almost like a studio owns a film when you produce for them. Yeah, right. So there was this diff- this idea that you can you can just do it, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It may not be uh, commercially viable, or it may be because of you know you try something no one else had. Right. But there that was the thing I got from NYU that I enjoyed. Some people didn't like it because the business of filmmaking really you know you had to really search for the classes that focus on that, and you could miss it by getting a lot of good technical stuff and watching great cinema from, you know, the twenties onward and really applying that to what you're trying to make. So you could really be high minded and and lofty while you were there. But then when you graduated, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe interning or you're working a job that's not in the, in the field and trying to make a living while you're pursuing your dream. Yeah, dude, that's something again, like I didn't, I'd not considered before. Cause if you go to college, you would hopefully expect to then work in that field, making money. And if all you did was focus on the artistic aspect, you had all these technical skills, but you can't combine them, produce them, market them, sell them. You almost have to then go out and work for somebody to do them versus putting them together and understanding how to put them together to be almost more empowered. Be, have more ownership of yourself. Yeah. I feel like I said that all clunky, but no, you, you're absolutely true. You, you couldn't have said it better. The, the, you know, they're the, like I said, the smart ones went out of there learning how to be editors and got internships editing, for example, because that's a skill people always need. Right. And they got work right away and their degree paid for itself in a while, and, you know, shorter it, it, they they were able to continue working in the field, right? You know, because they were good editors and they focused on that. And they still may want to be a director or producer, but they focus on that skill set and they, you know, were able to get work right away. That was that's one example. But um, but I went to school with some, you know, I went to school with Todd Phillips and uh, we M Night Shyamalan called him Minoj. And oh my god, that's how you say felt- his last name. I've been saying that wrong my entire life. I probably said it wrong too. So no. oh, wow. forgive me if I have. But the point is, you know, there were there were some people that we went to school with that either you could tell right away by how they presented them that they were going to they were going to make it. And then there was there was Todd Phillips who you just knew 
because the guy worked so hard. Uh-huh. He was he was waitering. He he he's he did taxicab confessions out of school. He developed a oh, film that was festival. Him? He did a documentary uh, with his producing partner Andrew Gerland. You know, soon after they won a, the prize at uh, Sundance, the guy was just scrappy, always always working and trying things, and um, and he made a documentary while we were in school about. G.G. Allen. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy. He was like, have not. like a part, part Iggy Pop, part performance artist. He would, <laughs> he was a punk rocker. Okay. And uh, Todd was making a film about him called Hated. And I think it's available again. Well, I remember Todd because he was just such a dynamic personality. Actually, a really nice guy. But he put bumper stickers all over the halls of NYU with this film hated the G.G. Allen story. So you couldn't miss it. He was into marketing way yeah, back then. Yeah, guerrilla marketing. Love it. Yeah, guerrilla marketing. That's right. And he made this film about this guy who would do the most um, nasty stuff on stage, let's say, right? He would he would perform, scream and yell, and then he would bodily fluids but you know like just terrible stuff but that was part of what you, you were you're expecting and he documented Gigi Allen's performances and Gigi Allen would say I'm gonna one of these performances I'm gonna take my own he wouldn't use these terms but I'm gonna take my own life on stage and so Todd wanted to be there when it happened <laughs> you know like <laughs> that was the story right pretty wild and I think he got a phone call one night that Gigi Allen <laughs> died not on stage oh, okay i was like Whoa. so yeah i don't i mean maybe i'm giving away the ending but <laughs> but you know he just he and he, he made it he made it his first film in it I, I think it made money but he just had that kind of you know not waiting for the system to come in place and the stars to all line up making them lining them up himself and uh that was what i got from nyu i'm curious now because you had asked me about the the purpose of the podcast and you had brought up big budget, low budget. And I think most people, we just want to be famous. And the more famous you are, you get a bunch of free shit and you get access to all sorts (laughs) of things that people are jealous of and you feel special and you get all the attention. And then all of a sudden it turns you into like a drug habit because you get no privacy and blah, blah, blah. Right. But (laughs) I'm curious with trying to make money on a film versus being an artist. So if you had to put yourself on a spectrum, the rainbow of, I just want to make millions versus I care about the arts. Are you like a 50, 50 guy? Do you, how do you fall on that? Well, it's hard to really separate that because you, um, you have to have the ability to make another one. Uh, And either that money comes independently. I'm not sure how I would find the financing for it. Uh, other than what I, the way I'm doing it now. And you would hope that, um, you know, a film is really judged, not just, it, it's judged on how many people see it. Right. Is and, that your you metric? Know, and um, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but that's interesting to me. It's not like Sundance film award, like you said, or a well, that's, Emmy that's stuff, too. or is it more like views ticket sold kind of a thing? That well, you try there, to there's different levels of success, but it, to, to have your film play at Sundance and win an award it's um, it's not just uh, legitimacy. It's also the I, the idea that you know when you go to a festival, you have you know hundreds, if not a, you know, you have a full house of people who 
chose your film over over others in a jury of industry, um, you know, highly respected people in the industry who've chosen your film to give you an award. And there's also this expectation that there's some commercial viability for your film, not uh. something that's going to roll out in theaters everywhere, but that will have um, some kind of theatrical life. That's not always the case. Actually, it's really tough now for award winners to find an audience. Really? But there is that mark that you're not an outsider if you win a film festival. You're not an outsider if you play at Sundance. You're you're in the pantheon. You know, you're that's big. Why is Sundance um, such a big deal? I mean, I, I'm not a film guy. I've clearly heard of it. Like, what yeah. what made it Sundance, the reverence? Sure, it's the tradition of of all the films that have gone through there and what it represents. You know, it's it's the um, it's independent American independent film. Um, it's um, it is uh, very competitive. And it's evolved into <clears throat> a launching ground for mid-level, mid-budget, um, you know, dramas, um, documentaries, uh, you know, films that have, um, they are many times a commercial venture before they air, that, that before they premiere, not always. But it started with, um, you know, filmmakers who were, who had a unique voice, who uh, could present them present uh their films to an audience that loved independent film and at a time where there weren't a lot of american film festivals there was there were the big ones new york film festival but this was a little smaller and it had a heavy industry presence meaning the idea is if you did well there you would be recognized and you could um either go on the festival circuit around the world and or um distribute your film and and when films, Sundance Film Festival start began, there really wasn't, there weren't a lot of outlets for that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you're, you're, and I don't know when it began, but in my head, I'm picturing, like, dial-up internet, if that. So, like, to, to see a commercial yeah. for a film, you don't have your own website. You're not posting it to your followers on Instagram and promoting, hey, you can see this on this date. You basically had to have, like, an ad in the paper or a commercial on some sort of network for people to know Oh shit, a new movie's out. <laughs> That's right. And you know, one of the films at Sundance that probably is the biggest success story that I can think of was Blair Witch Project, which was oh, in 99, yeah. right? And that was one of the biggest money makers of the year. Did you and think that was, was real? I'm sorry to cut you off. Like I I think that I 99, I was 18. We could not figure out if that was actually real or not for like yeah. 6 months, dude. And we didn't believe like both sides, we, we were like, no, yeah. it really happened. That that was legit. They died down there and someone discovered the camera. <laughs> did you think it was me. real when you watched it or did yeah. you know? Well, you know, I just had followed because IndieWire just started up a year before. And, um, and what I was following is how they marketed that. Oh. And they marketed it exactly how you're talking. They, they used the internet. They, you had a website and it was not – it was kind of novel. I mean – Films were thinking about doing that, but their primary way of distributing and, and marketing was print and advertising, you know, newspapers and, and spots, right? And then getting uh, the actors to do the rounds on, um, on the talk shows and, exactly. and print, you know, ever. it was p uh, print and advertising. This was thinking about things different. And Memento did the same thing in 2000. They had a website. I think it's still around. It's, it's a word backward, Memento backwards. 
Huh. And it would give you like you would immerse yourself in the experience of the the world of the film before seeing it. And I don't know how much that's done anymore with films, but but that's definitely what Blair Witch was doing in their marketing, in their guerrilla, you could call it guerrilla marketing, right? Is giving you an idea that this is a real story you're watching and you have this privileged perspective of seeing these tapes of these guys who went into the woods and is it haunted or not? You, you know, this is the story of these guys who went to Maryland and uh, you can see it. And there's this idea of like, wow, you know, I have, I had this unique access to this story because I found this out this way. Right. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, the film stands on its, uh, on its own um, merits, but it was just, just the right time to do that. And that was Sundance that played, I think it was a midnight screening, which is, not, I don't know if it was in competition. I can't remember. We have to look it up. I'm sure it's there. But it was kind of a fringe in a way, but it just, everybody wanted to see this film at midnight. You know, um, Miramax, like all these film uh, studios, mid-level studios, and that were owned by bigger corporations were all wanting to buy this film. And it just took off. And that's, I think that is what festivals at their best can do. They can find a, a diamond in the rough, present it to the world and it can find its audience. Yeah, I guess. And that would be the cool thing. It almost, um, the festivals. And when you said Miramax, it made me think we have a huge micro brew, um, love down in Southern Delaware. I don't know. Are you familiar? Really? Yeah. Oh dude. Fuck. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with dogfish head dogfish beer? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's in Delaware. Oh, you know what, man? I might just cut it off right now. I'm insulting <laughs> you and your big city thinking. No, yeah, dude, it's it's from Milton, Delaware. Dude, it's, yeah, it, it's five minutes now. I could ride my bike there. I actually almost jogged there yesterday. I, I ran a half a marathon just for the fuck of it yesterday. Um, <laughs> but, dude, what, what I think of when I think of Miramax is I think of microbrews. And yeah. the microbrew thing is you get all this creativity. You get to try all sorts of shit. You have 13 different types of beers and you don't know what people are going to like. You just know I had all these ideas. So you can go to these beer festivals and you get little whatever shots of beer and people come and they're like, wow, this is really good. And that's kind of what happened to dogfish. And now dogfish is owned by Boston beer company and they move up and the exposure from just them trying things and putting it out there and being in the right spot. When you have something good, man, people talk about it. And it's now true. you put people who would love to talk about films together in this area. The the festival thing, um, I guess it's always made sense. Like, oh, well, people talk about films. But when you say it like that, like the full house and the marketing of it, and then you have these other suits, if you want to call them that, that are kind of just eavesdropping on what is the buzz, you can get ahead of things. And you can be like, yeah, we want to own that. Yeah. Right. Um, it's interesting to talk about Miramax in today's climate because what do we know? Oh, that's Weinstein, right? Could he yeah. fucking release Dogma? <laughs> Dude, I'm so pissed I can't find Dogma anywhere. I had to watch this bullshit YouTube oh, video. So if you YouTube it, you can't get you can't get it. So if you YouTube it, it was like a two hours, but like if you picture the screen, it was only a quarter of the screen and the rest of the screen was like <laughs> flames. And Makes I don't you want more, right? Yeah, right. Well, you just want like a quality image of it, but you could see it. It was just crap. Um, sure. But I, I just want to be able to get it on Netflix. Like, why is that not released? It's such a good movie. Dogma is just 
such a good yeah movie. i think you're right that's it's a good point because they were bought by disney uh, and and um they became uh no longer a micro brewery right so to speak they became part of a bigger conglomerate yeah. and you lose that I, I don't know i have confidence that that there always be an audience for that diamond in the rough that that independent voice that's something a fresh perspective that just wants to try something crazy and just be like hey let's see let's see man just like those weird coffee beers or whatever (laughs) it's like well why are we putting honey in this i don't know man wanted to see what the fuck would happen (laughs) like all right cool it's a mixture of tea and coffee great (laughs) but that would be see i've never been we actually used to have um another thing in delaware the rehoboth film festival happen to hear about that at all or yeah, yeah, it's it definitely it's on the on the circuit. Really. Oh no yeah. way! So what's going on? Yeah, the, dude, that's that's where I live. So you were living in Hoth Beach. I, I, I used to vacationer as a kid. Oh yeah. no way! No, well that's why I don't live. I work there. Um, I wish I lived there. If I had a more successful podcast, maybe I'll live there in a year. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the I'm area, the general area, dude. Oh, dude, that's all. so. Rehoboth Film Festival is actually like known, huh? Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, and <clears throat> I I think. Yeah, I mean, things are constantly changing with independent film. And um, the goal for most filmmakers is to make a living doing it. And there are very few, just like actors and musicians, there are very few that are able to do it for a living. You know, specifically narrative or documentary theatrical films. It's very hard to do. Um, But what people are, and there's no one way to do it. There never has been. Right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And now there, um, there's just, it's more and more chaotic for a couple of reasons. One is, well, now obviously in 2020, there are very few places that you can screen your film and have a, I mean, you like can't a have festival. a full house. It's impossible. Um, but the, the theatrical distribution is just not in the, ne- in the near future. It's not viable. It's not just, it's not where you're going to make your money. You're going to make your, money streaming i'm not quite sure how that works actually because it's kind of i can get into that a little yeah, later is but it like spotify so i i've had a couple artists who put songs on at spotify yeah. and they're right. like hey man play my song because every time you push play i get half a cent right <laughs> and you're like yeah, i've wondered like on amazon prime when i watched your film like do, do you get 22 cents for that is that like a fl- flat yeah, yeah. standard rate do you get thank to you for watching it on amazon prime thank you so much because it does a couple of things one is now this algorithm for netflix is i'm not on netflix is even more kind of closed and and a lot of people don't know how it works but with amazon prime it's similar what it does for a filmmaker and and i think spotify does this with music and our soundtrack is on spotify victoria de la vega's um, haunting soundtrack. She did an amazing job working on, on the soundtrack is on Spotify. But what, what happens is, yeah, I think I get like, depending on how many people watch it, you can make up to 11 cents of an hour. I think I get between one and three cents, depending on how many people watch it. And as in just push play or as in watch totality when you had said an hour, that's why I was wondering. Yeah. An, uh, an, uh, a full hour of viewership equals between one cent and 11 cents. Holy shit. That's the current thing per view, but man, that's... yeah, but right. But consider a couple things. Amazon prime is a monster. They're huge. And that includes all of the English speaking, like great Britain. Um, I think Ireland, Canada and the United States. 
It's a huge market. And <clears throat> what having a film on Amazon Prime, initially I didn't want it for free because I was thinking about, you know, we'd like to make some money back on it. And having, um, you know, instead of subscriber base, it would be nice if it's, you know, VOD, video on demand. Well, the difference is more people have seen it. You know, I, I just since we relaunched it in, um, we relaunched the film because we had a different, we had a distributor that went belly up. Uh, are you talking about Chain Gang or are you talking about Nothing Without You? Nothing Without You. Okay. Um, I'm able to see the numbers directly. And, you know, a few hundred people, few hundred thousand people have seen the film that no never would have. They don't, they don't know me. They haven't seen it from the festival. They maybe know the actors. Maybe they don't. Because what... Yeah, I didn't um, recognize any of the actors. No, no shade, but like I had no idea. I really liked the girl. Like, but now you look for Emily. Yeah, now you look for Emily Frattenberg and the other films she's done or and doing because yeah. of that. What it does is it serves things up like Spotify does, and that's great for independent filmmakers because if you like the, what it's going to do, Sean is it's going to say Sean likes this kind of film. Uh, other people who like Sean have Sean's taste. We're going to serve up nothing without you in Ameri American Chain Gang because we think this will be something you'd like to watch. Oh, and for a filmmaker, that is that's amazing because there are so many more people that are going to watch our film that maybe have never heard of it because we didn't have money from a lot of money. We did a theatrical run and we did a little print and advertising, but we didn't do it like you know a like a fifteen million dollar film. That's 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 amazing. And you know, at the end of the day. We make a little money here and there, but it lives on and it finds an audience and it, it exists um, for audiences overseas and in the United States. Also, one of the things that's really cool, how we met was through Instagram. You reached out through Instagram and social media, you know, has a dark side for sure. But we had found an audience through Facebook and Instagram that we never would have before. We have I haven't checked. We had at one point 28,000 followers on Facebook for our film. And that was so key in getting, when we played the film festivals, a full house is so important because it means a lot to the festival. They're selling tickets. It means a lot to the other people watching the film. I don't know. I don't like watching a film in an empty cinema. Um, I just like being with other people. But it also just means something to the film, to everybody who worked on the film, because if you say <clears throat> I screened at Sarasota Film Festival or South by Southwest and I filled the, the seats, then to the next festival I can ask for a Friday or Saturday night okay. which are the key spots and say I'm likely to do that again. In fact, I'll do everything I can through the Facebook followers who are interested in our film to ask them to attend if they're in that area. Gotcha. That's how Facebook's really helpful. And, and I, I don't know what exists now. Maybe, maybe TikTok is good for that. I'm not quite sure. But I know Instagram has been great in, in migrating viewers once we've had it available on Amazon and iTunes because you can do a link right there on your on your account. And we have an account for each film and I have an account for myself is that 
through those hashtags, it's amazing, right? I mean, you through Dude, I still can't wrap my head. I still feel like I fuck the hashtag thing all up. Hashtag fuck Everybody it up. Everybody does. Because it's I'm such like, a mystery. I'm just grabbing them and I, I've gone yeah. down rabbit holes. And before I know yeah. it, I'm two hours deep reading all sorts right. of fucking websites of like, <laughs> you know, you can d- d- search your hashtag for audience and the smaller numbers are better. And you need to go for engagement and the bigger right. numbers don't get lost in the clicks. Yeah, and you're right, like, right. Uh, you get overwhelmed and I'm just like, fuck it. Like, right. Yeah, you throw them on there and you have no right. idea there's, and it bothers me to my core because it's, I'm very much in numbers. Like, dude, just what is the right way? Let me do the right way. But it goes to what you're saying. There is no right way. There is no right way to be a full-time actor. There is no right way to hashtag properly. I just wonder, Sean, do you think that that's deliberate? That, that there is no it's one power, way that man. Instagram wants it to be yeah, <laughs> like this so, thing you spend two hours trying to figure out every day. Yeah. Um, is that part of the plan? I, well, I wonder. What you I think. want to clarify. It's not every day. I'm not that much of a loser. Oh, no, 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 no. A- every other day, every other day, every other day. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it, I really wonder if they keep it a secret because of, if no one can understand it yeah. because that's their intellectual property. And if it got out, I can make my own Instagram and it's almost like website coding, right? You know how you can like click on a website and you can know the code and I can yeah. back in the day, I could like copy ESPN's code, insert my own images and can make a <laughs> website that was exactly like ESPN's. Someone yeah. else did all the work, but I get to now put that on my website. And I wonder if the algorithm thing for whoever, Google hashtags, if they keep it so secretive because that's, how they make their money or conspiracy theory, it allows them to manipulate information for whatever purpose they want to have trending. And since no one can actually fucking check it, it's like, oh, I guess 700,000 people are talking about that. But you have no idea if 900,000 are talking about something else because you can't verify it, you know? It's a black hole. Yeah, but that's, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to say, um, I was actually, I try to take notes because it is easy to veer off. The Q thing is another algorithm when you had said you don't know how it works. And I feel yeah. like you're, you're getting to a point of like Q saturation where you just, you do, man, you just want Netflix to be like, dude, tell me the good fucking movie, man. Tell me what I like. I, I'm tired of just clicking down, clicking over, clicking through the genre. And I just want, you to know Netflix with artificial intelligence. Tell me, will I like this movie? I've clicked. Yes, I like it. Click. No, I like it a bunch of times. I've watched these types of films and I had not thought about that, that I'm part of that. So now the fact that I've watched nothing without you and chain gang, someone with my similar demographics and viewing preferences like that shit will pop up. That's crazy. It's crazy. And it, and it, it's, it's, um, it's, but awesome at the same time. It's awesome at the same time. And, and one of the other components of the algorithm is rating and reviewing. If you were to rate and review it, it serves it up a little higher right? Um, because of your engagement with it. And the more rates and reviews, the higher uh, that uh, star level is, then the more people would be served up to. From what I understand, I could be wrong. Yeah, dude. And I'm struggling with that on the podcast. I've been, I know as- I rated and reviewed right away after, well, not right away after I listened to some podcasts. Thank you, dude. You gotta I'm, be a part of it, right? Dude, I think I'm, iTunes is a little clearer in the algorithm, isn't, isn't it? Uh, how if, that works or is it? Yeah. If you're going to, for iTunes, it's huge because Spotify doesn't have a five-star review. You can just subscribe on Spotify. Oh, okay. But for like this, dude, I found out and it shifted like almost 60% of my downloads are on iTunes. And if I want to ever expand my market 
past listeners, past followers, past guests to get into their, if you search whatever category this podcast falls under, which I believe is cultural because there is no humanistic podcast category, you got to have likes and you got to have the stars and you actually have to have the, I believe the interaction of typing a comment holds a really? lot of value because it shows interaction. Comment. Anybody can click five stars, but if people are actually talking about it, I believe iTunes ranks it higher. Amazing. So, dude, I, I've like, I've gone on full benders, like where I'm posting on stories. I'm like, can you please fucking hit five stars, man? And I lead all my intros with it. And I've really been amazed that, I don't know, I must have a wrong technique because I think I only have like 16 reviews and I'm like, I don't know the way to market it. So I guess all that to say, I'm curious, do you have a particular way that you market to get those reviews, to get people to click those stars? Sure. Um, I think it's, but I really like the point you made, you know, before, if you needed to launch something like a podcast or maybe before it was a radio show, you may have asked money for people to support you monetarily and you probably still do right i know i know yeah. but now it's easier for people to support you by simply writing a comment 22 seconds starring it costs them nothing to do and sure. it shows sincere support for what you're doing so that threshold of support is lower and anybody can do it and i think it's good that you're mentioning in your podcast you should continue to do it it's something that um people could feel good about doing and, um, yeah, and for you know, films it helps too, the rest of the world know. Yeah, and it's not just the podcast thing. It's people like you, which I think is important for those independent people trying to just crack through the plethora of cues, <laughs> the plethora yeah. of choices. Well, the, the other thing I would say is, is um, for me, Instagram has been a great tool because I can see, you know, um, if you – I'm, I'm now I'm directly uh, – <clears throat> I have – American Chang, no, I have nothing without you directly on Prime Video. I submitted it myself, and I can see the numbers. I'm not going through an aggregator or distributor, so I can see what happens. And one of the things, Sean, I, I noticed was on our Nothing Without You film account, the more time I would spend on it by liking <clears throat> a few hashtags. They're indie film, and they're film festival-related and um, our film is a suspense thriller, so suspense thriller, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, and you know, particularly independent film hashtags. The more time I would participate, like, communicate with people who want to look at independent films, suspense mm. films, uh, female lead uh, films, you know, psychological thrillers, right. the more time I would spend, I would see that line go up like a rocket huh. and I, those two hours a day or whatever obsessive loss of sleep would pay off in viewership hmm. directly depending Just on how many yeah i mean it's amazing with the hashtag with the yeah i would go with the hashtag and then i would also go to on accounts like communicate <clears throat> excuse me new postings are huge um, so you, I could see that direct result where, you know, everything's a, in a black box. You can't see how things work. I could see it with Amazon prime. Um, and it, and it's cumulative too. The more time you spend, the more days it builds on itself. Right. Because I think when I'm looking for a new film or I'm looking for a new, sometimes I'm looking for new products, um, of, you know, filmmaking tools because they're getting 
less expensive. They're, they can do more. I want to see what's out there. I'll go on hashtags to see what can be marketed to me, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And I think when I'm looking for an independent film or I want to know what's playing at the festivals or at Venice film festivals happening right now, I want to know, you know, what films are playing there. I'll go to those hashtags and I'll explore and I'll like vice versa. If someone's looking for, especially when people are at home for a new film, They'll go on Instagram and look for images, what to watch, you know, and, and, uh, hmm. and, um, you know, they'll do that. And if it's served up to them and if you have a link in your account, it just, they call it friction. There's less friction for people yeah. to right away watch your film. And if it's free, it's even easier. How much of that is you just going through it and how much of that is like college educated or like no, you took some college. online classes or something like that? You don't need a college education to be a filmmaker or creative. Oh, no. no, to understand the social media aspect. Like, I wonder, is that like an elective in film? Like marketing, your, you know, marketing on Instagram is a three credit class kind of a thing. It and you should know what be, I'm I think. Yeah, I think there's some things that in in the curriculum that I didn't have, I would like to have had. I would like to have had a class on how to build a business plan. <laughs> really, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, we didn't think of it as a commercial venture, but every film is a business. Right. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. It is so, it, you can see the direct results of how you, um, of how you're engaging an audience because with those two formats, people who look for films are looking for certain hashtags. You were asking before, how do you get people to rate and review you? You encourage it. You can't, you know, it's their choice and you hope if they like it, they'll support it by, um, by reviewing it, hopefully with a five star, or, you know, four stars, uh, and, and giving a comment about what they liked about it, because that is, there's a hashtag support indie film. I think Ted Hope started the idea that you can support things without spending any money, uh, and help it find a wider audience with a podcast, with a film, with a, with a, uh, a music, yeah, anything, all like the same any... thing. So there's this democratization of, of, um, you know, of finding an audience, not necessarily a big one, but it does grow. And the idea is you have another podcast and that has a, you know, it builds on itself, right? People are going to continue to, they know what to expect. They know what to, they'll get on each episode and they're going to look and see who does he have now on his Instagram stream. Okay. Now I'm going to go to this. You have a Spotify link and go right to it. It's uh, the right way. You're going about it the right way from my perspective. Well, hope I'm doing this the right, right way on my film. I just, if, I think I'm doing the same thing you are. I'm just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks and what works. So then if I try to market my knowledge of podcasting in some sort of pyramid scheme for online <laughs> education class, can I say Zachary endorsed marketing plan? <laughs> Please don't. It won't do you any good, but it'll flatter me. That's about all it'll do. <laughs> no, I've gotten, I forget, dude, it was this one young, sometimes I like talking to like young kids and dude was like 22. Yeah. I got across to him on Twitter and I'm yep. always amazed. And I I thought I was smart at 22, but I feel like people constantly were telling me like, you're just a fucking know-it-all, but you're not smart. I listened <laughs> to some of these 22-year-olds and I'm like, dude, you're fucking smart. Like super intellectual. Right. And he's into stocks. He's into all these things. Wow. And we were talking about how easy it is to manipulate people into subscriptions online and pyramid money-making schemes. Where like you have this $30 book, but it's on sale for 15. And if you sell it to your, your users 
I get 750, you get 750. And the books say nothing. You know, they're like how to make money on the internet. And it's basically like what you and I are saying right now. Like nobody fucking knows, but here's some things you can try. But it's like guaranteed way to make six figures within six months. And we're like, we need to do that, man. Like we just need to lose all moralistic boundaries. We need to stop being pure and we just need to hustle and scheme. Okay. Well, I guess some people say that's the American way. Um, oh, dude, but, so uh, and I've never been good at sales salesmanship, but I would say, I know I consider that what you are doing is you're not selling a book about how to make money, which is almost a self fulfilling kind of thing, but with a pyramid scheme, yeah. you're creating something that is, has real content. And, uh, I know, and yeah, I know you're joking around, but you know, you have an audience out there that just has started to find you and will find you more and more. And as you have more and more podcasts, there's going to be more for them to gravitate towards. So it's just connecting the dots. It's easier than ever to do that. And it just requires like, there's, you know, it's it just, just a grind, man. If you're time. Yeah. It's a time but, grind. No, it's a time yeah. grind. Just like you're saying, it's, um, Again, to go back to Joe Rogan, I mean, he'd been um, just got 150 from Spotify. That dude puts out four episodes and he's been doing it for almost 15 years. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? And like he just finally got the fruits of that monetary and he's been making money. So I shouldn't say he just got the fruits, but like for 10 years, he's just fucking like, I don't know if he meant to make money and it's not like my one goal is to make money. If I got the time, it's a cool little hobby because it's creative. But, yeah. and I think the what I'm getting at is it's got to be a lot like you, where it's, you enjoy the creativity, you hope to make some money, but you're doing it in like this weird blind faith of, I, I just want to grind and then yeah. it'll happen, you know, but you well, never know how long it's going to take. And that can be very daunting for a lot of independent creators. If you're literally trying to create, so I've never created anything from scratch. It's been kind of neat to have this thing that I can say. I created from scratch. It, it's created mine. Scratch. And I'm sure you feel that way about films a lot of times where you're like, dude, it's pretty fucking neat that I created this thing and I want to keep and creating. It's also, it's also building a platform for the next project. Hmm. Um, one of the things that you, you're, you're right to look at others and how successful people do, you know, how do they market what they've got? And you got to believe in what you're, you've made and you got to stand behind it. But um, the good thing about it is, people will take to what you have because you have something you believe in that would appeal to a certain audience. It's just figuring out what that audience is and how, what they look for on social media, particularly, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Cause we can't, we're not spending money on <laughs> newspaper ads. Remember those or radio spots. Those aren't really exist anymore. People are all on, fortunately they're all, unlike for watching movies for social media. Everyone is in the same place. They're, they're, Facebook owns Instagram. They're all in the same place. Right. It's the biggest advertising platform in the history of the world. It's because it's engaging. It's mysterious. It takes you different ways. And, and you, um, you know, the pleasure synapses in your mind kind of get fired off by watching certain things that you like and want, you know, yeah. you want this piece of equipment. You, you know, maybe you want this piece of clothing <clears throat> and you start thinking about like, how do I buy it? Or, you know, this picture of a cute French, bulldog, whatever. These things are just 
they, they're what we're looking for. And we find things that eventually we're going to gravitate towards or spend more time with. If we want to watch a movie. But what I would say is, you know, yeah, you're right. You got to look at what other people are doing. And one of the things that I noticed another filmmaker do was when somebody would review his film, he would post their review on Instagram. Oh, right. Yeah. So I started yeah. doing that. I started when I got a nice review, I would thank whoever reviewed it. Sometimes I didn't know who it was. Right. I would post a review with an image of the film and that, you know, it just puts it in people's wait. mind. He puts it in people's minds. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm proud of when somebody who I've never met likes my film, it's something I want to show. Um, but it's not just an issue of pride. It's also just an idea that, um, it was an idea I saw somebody else do. And, um, it kind of opens up the conversation for other people. If they see that they go to that account, you know, I think we have like 2,700 followers, not a lot on there, but it grows. And it's not just people who are following your account. They're people that are going to see your stuff in the, you know, in the ocean of Instagram posts and take a minute to remember that, you know, that image and what it, you know, what it relates to your podcast. I'm really curious about you watching your film with a live audience. Have you, I would assume you've done that or am I being an ass or am I making an ass of you and me by assuming that? No. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So dude, like, are you just sweating through your shirt? Are you even able to watch the film? Or are you just constantly watching all the people's reactions? And you're like, no, 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 there's, you should be laughing, laugh. Or you should be like cringing, cringe. What, what are you like while you're watching people watch your film? <laughs> so my creative partner in the last film, Rick Santos, who co-wrote the story and, and uh, co-produced it with me, um, he liked that experience. It was the payoff for him. Uh, you know, seeing words that he'd written um, people reacting to it. And, and that was, that was, I think the most enjoyable part of the, I think that's what he said was the festival circuit. And we had a theatrical run in New York for me, it is, um, a little painful (laughs) to watch with an audience. It is, it is a payoff, but it's also, um, all I can see are the rough edges of the film Mm. and, um, not all I can see, but I certainly see them. It's what you focus on. That's what I focus on, yeah, right? You're a pessimistic, well, it, depressed person by nature. <laughs> I hope not. But, <laughs> but, you know, I'm thinking about it as if we're, we're watching it and we can change it yeah. and make it and improve it. And, you know, you have to abandon it at a certain point and you're happy and it stands, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to lock picture until it's time to lock picture, but you always think about lock picture means you're done. You're right. start to color correct and sound mix and all that. But you're always thinking about, you know, I, this is rough. I want to smooth this edge out. And does time just not allow you to do that? Or is it more like you're going mad hat or crazy and you reach a point where you're like, dude, I'm I'm just fucking doing too much. I'm bedazzling too many rhinestones on this jean jacket. (laughs) Let me stop. (laughs) Well, that's part of the editing process too. Is it, is it, is it too, is it too heavy? Is it too long? Is it too ornate? Is it, does it need to be simple, simplified? Do we need to cut a scene? <clears throat> Should a line of a dialogue be re-recorded here to connect these two, uh, this tissue here, the connective tissue of, of two scenes? You know, a lot of stuff happens. And actually some of the best stuff you do in editing is simplifying things that on the page were a little right. longer. Because it, anything from the angle you chose or the performance, you, you know, film is watching beha- its behavior unfolding. 
and you see it, maybe you didn't need that line or even that scene and it gets cut. And so some of that happens in the, in the, and is that where your mind goes? So if let's just say, for instance, someone does not laugh at a piece of humorous dialogue or that you thought was humorous, are you going back to a decision and you're like, fuck man, I remember that Monday morning. I knew I should have left that line in. Is that, do you take it that serious? Or that well, stark? yeah, sure. Uh, There's actually a, a line in the film that people laughed at that I, I'm glad they laugh at it because <laughs> and it wasn't intended to be. It's ridiculous, but it's not intended to be humorous. It's it's um, the first um, few uh, ten minutes are a day in the life of our main character, and, um, and it's a voiceover, so you can understand. Oh, how dude, she I love how you did those voiceovers. By the way, oh, like like her. Yeah, um, like, I remember Tom, and I'm sorry, I I don't mean to cut you off, but that was the two things that stood out to me. Were I really enjoyed the voiceovers in her head. Because I don't know why you just love that. And then you slowly realize the illness, right? <laughs> like you're just like, whoa, right. did not see it going that way real quick. And then the close shots. But she does a really good job of having Amazing the expressions stuff. that match yes. the voiceover, which is part of what I heard like Tom Hanks got for the Da Vinci Code. They were like, he's really good at facial expressions without saying anything during voiceovers. Sorry, uh, but that... oh, so true. I'm so, so glad you said that, Sean. But it also relates to the the ta- there were two people who worked closely together that hadn't met each other until the till we screened it at a movie theater in New York, and that is uh, Giacomo Ambrosini, who's the editor, and Emily Fradenberg, who's the lead actor. And um, Emily's performance, um, she had that subtlety. She internalized the character in a way that exceeded my expectations when we were writing the script. And what you need is an editor who can see that in the performance and, and craft it. Yeah, man. The ti- that I can't editor, imagine the time to layer yeah, that up. God. That's right. And an editor is an unsung hero of a performance because when you're, it's a very mechanical process making a film and you know, when you see actors, winding up before a take they're thinking mechanically i need to be here because i was here in the wide shot and and then they have to and they have to bring the performance alive what an editor can do is find what that actor was doing in that take and see how it applies to the story Mm. and how it applies to the scene and that's what giacomo did he connected with her performance in a way that just brought that performance even to a higher level dude that voiceover had me Cause honestly, I was a little skeptical of you. I'm like, who's this guy, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm this guy. I think almost have three thousand total, no, thirty five hundred total downloads. So I'm feeling big about myself. I'm like, you know, do I really even want to watch this guy's movie? And then instantly, dude, the voiceover scene with Emily. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. You know, I was just gonna have it in the background so I could like take a note, but it draws you in immediately. It's just really well done. What was Thank the um? What was the laughing? What was the line that people found humorous that you were like really didn't mean to be humorous? Do you oh remember? yeah, uh, I I don't have the script in front of me, but it's um, when she's talking about how um, uh, you know how every relationship has its ups and downs, and, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like she's this is her day in her life, and the character I'm not giving it away because it's it's part of the setup is she's a, she's yeah. a stalker. Um, uh, the character's name Jennifer That's is. So true. Um, obsessed with one man who's unavailable to her and she has a she has a psychological condition that um, 
puts these blinders on her life. And we need to understand, you know, not just it's alien to, fortunately it's alien to most people to think like that. However, it isn't because act on those thoughts (laughs) because we all have been there. We all wanted something we can't have. And we've given something up of who we are as a person in the pursuit of it. And Mm. we know that that has had a cost to us. We've all been there. We've all tried to fill a void that we see instead of with, with the wrong things. And, um, by, uh, you know, hearing her dialogue in ways that, okay, this is normal for her. Yeah. Then you kind of set the tone. The other thing we did is we saw a lot of her perspective through a psychiatrist yeah. who could understand, help her understand her behavior and unravel this mystery. Cause a lot of it is like a lot of psychological thrillers, like suspense thrillers is what is real, who is guilty. Um, and you know, what, what is sanity? Um, and that to have that anchor point of a character who helps us view her made what is not commonplace relatable. Dude, That was when, when Rick and I were working on the script and we had some help from other people too, is how do we, how do we get this main character likable and relatable? Because what she's doing and seeming to do is, is, it's fucked up, man. And you're on her side. You're like, yeah, dude, you, you know what, girl? Side. I hope you get your man. <laughs> I'm with you. You're so right, dude. As soon as you said, I can't remember what's on the screen when the every relationship has its ups and downs. But I do remember laughing. I think I was actually, I like to watch movies or um, listen to podcasts and work out. I'm not a music guy when I yeah. work out. So I'm like on this weird balance ball. I'm trying this plyometric shit that I'm seeing LeBron James do. And I hear like every relationship has its ups and downs. And I almost fucking fall over, dude. Cause I was like, what a great, it, it just, it's so dismissive of something that you're like, these aren't ups and downs lady. Like, what it's are absurd. you doing? Yeah, It's absurd. <laughs> and, it, and it should be, and it should be something a little uncomfortable and it should be that, you know, engage you in a way that, you know, makes you laugh because it's yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, it, it is. Feels. It's one of those humorous breaks. And you didn't mean that to be humorous. No, right? but it was supposed to. Yeah, that's right. I didn't. Uh, I wanted a reaction and I wanted this idea that uh, these are the va- this is the value set that she has that we don't, under- you know, yeah. <laughs> that's how we would view maybe an ex. Yeah. But this is how she's viewed a traumatic experience that happens in the first 10 minutes. It sets up mistakes for everything and it's and i didn't mean it and if i make a poor comparison i don't mean to be offensive just like when i said you were a pessimistic depressed person i'm glad you laughed at that because i worry sometimes you know just just being stupid to be stupid um (laughs) especially with the title nothing without you one of the first books the psychological books carolyn kreps you i think it might have been out 10 years ago netflix actually just made the series of it with joe are you familiar with that at all or tell me more so Joe is psychotic and first person story. He falls in love with these girls. He's a murderer and he stalks and he's the dude that like breaks into the apartment and takes your underwear and has the box and like figures out these ploys of how to have a relationship with you. And he's constantly battling this urge to like murder you or just sexually assault you and just own you with, and like you hear all these raging thoughts, dude, you'll have like three pages of his thoughts and like just devious shit he wants to do. And then like the dialogue's like, so you want to grab a drink? (laughs) And you're just like, you're like, no, 
but the yes, way sir. the right. way he rationalizes all of these utterly sinful criminal desires, the depravity, you wind up liking him. You're on Joe's side. And the Nothing Without You film, that that type of character where you're like, it's almost like Walter White. Like, should I be rooting for the meth dealer? <laughs> should I be rooting for the, what do they call that? The anti-hero, right? It, it, um, it took me to that Carolyn Kreps you, and I think the second one was Hidden Bodies. Um, but yeah, it's a Netflix special. I think it's had two or three seasons, man. I, you would, if, if you enjoyed yes, yes, nothing yeah. without you, I think you would enjoy that as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, what, one of the things, the other, the other thing that got a laugh was, um, when she's telling a police officer, I'm, I was, I'm too busy doing your job for you. <laughs> and, um, and I, I'm glad that that got a response too, because that <laughs> character is, she's been actualized, you know, she's, she's um dude she's macgyver at that point she's fucking she's MacGyver, super sleuth. she's innovative she's taking her own and everybody is re- <clears throat> a lot of times in a in a uh, psychological thriller the woman is almost objectified and and she everyone everything she's responding to things that are happening to her this story is the opposite she starts things in motion that other people react to and she's the active investigator in her own you know, case that she's yeah. accused of murder in. And that, that was um, part of what was important to us was to make, you know, if you look at one of the things that I think that I've noticed is when you look at a lot of films play with each other, right. They'll, they'll make reference to another film. They'll even have the same plot points, meaning certain things will happen at certain points, but they're, uniquely so uniquely their own right like think of the joker and taxi driver they make reference to it but there's so many similarities oh. and robert de niro and robert de niro is in both right that's a maybe not a, kind of a crude example but no I'm with one, you. Of the, one of the films we looked at was we looked at a, a few you know i was just, i like memento i like i like an unreliable narrator i like you know i like a lot of what hitchcock does that's such a lofty goal to be anything like what he's done but I like Rene Clément. I like these these um, these films that explore the psychological landscape of a main character. Dude, that's and and ha- but have a really grounded in reality, rigid story that is plot point driven. It, you know, I just that like you... that because it's the best of being very specific and also free flowing and exploring. You know, if you can, the subconscious a little bit. Dude, the unreliable narrator. I can't believe. I didn't do that because we teach this. Poe, um, what's the yeah. what, what's the um the I? What's the name of that? Telltale Heart. Yeah, dude, like like it. You're so right. That is, are we are we deprived or depraved? Are we weird that we enjoy that unreliable narrator? Because it's to guessing, me, it's, right, dude. It is. It's like what is reality, right? Can I yeah. trust this story? That's right, and um, uh, but one of the the uh, I, a, a good friend of mine gave some, some great advice. His name's Keir Pearson. He, he wrote uh, hotel Rwanda and he was so gracious in advising me on writing the script. And he said, I had an earlier draft and it was going a couple different directions. Remember what he said? He said, I want you to look at the screenplay for the fugitive. 
I thought to myself, The Fugitive, this isn't that kind of film. That That's about a guy who's trying to prove his innocence. Wait, oh, it is about the same kind of film. It's about somebody trying to prove their innocence. Yeah. Okay, he's not a stalker, but no one believes him. Okay, he said, yeah, look at that screenplay. Watch that film. I watched the film about 30 times, read the screenplay several times. And he said, look at how the story unfolds. How does it start? It's a day in the life. Is there, you know, is there the law kind of closing in on him? Is there, you know, uh, the reality of what he understands things to be is not what it really is. Mm. You know, our, our difference is we have a character that she's, um, I mean, both of them are, are violent at times characters. Ours is more menacing. But we looked at that script and we looked at how it, how it happened, how it was constructed very carefully. And that helped us hone the final draft of the, of the script. And I know a lot of that to, to Cure Pearson. Cure also suggested using the Red One camera and shooting uh, shooting the film myself as opposed to hiring a, a director of photography. I, I thought both of those were not the not the direction I would go, but they were. There was great advice, and I owe him a lot for it. Dude, um, two things, and I'm probably most likely gonna forget both of them because um, I didn't write them down and I get distracted easily. That's something that I didn't realize people who are writing scripts do that they'll break down and like hyper analyze similar storylines or stories that they see are similar to them or that they aspire to in order to help them. And I guess what I'm wondering is, does it like piss people off? Do they be like, you're fucking copying my story film? Or is that like, um, like one of those, like imitation is the sincerest form of flattery things where they're like, Oh wow. The movie The Fugitive is inspiring all this other stuff, and we take it as respect. Well, is that a weird question? I, I don't it, mean it to be. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you're looking at a, a genre, a suspense thriller, and anyone who – not anyone. Most people who start to write in that genre are looking as their North Star, as their guiding reference points, other specific films – and many times what they'll do is they'll have that film in either there's something they're playing off of or making a version of it that is specific to them, or it's a few different films. So I think that happens very often. And The Fugitive is one of these films that works on so many levels. Right. And if you look at it carefully, the beginning, if you read the script and you watch the film, the beginning of the film is not shot as how it was shot differently than how it plays out. They cut scenes and, and just make this montage to get you quickly into the idea that this guy um, is uh, has uh, witnessed his wife's murder and has been um, framed for it and is on the run. Right. And in the film, it happens scene by scene. Instead, they cut it down to really quick things. So it it, it didn't start off in the written page the way it, it played out. That was kind of cool to see, too. Huh. But what it does is it gives you a, a guidepost, and I think a lot of a lot of filmmakers who work in a specific genre do that. Yeah, and I guess you would need that to qualify your film in the genre, because what is a genre? You have to have similar characteristics to put something together. So now yeah, I feel – well, I'm sorry. I was just going to say now I feel stupid for even bringing that up because when I talk about it out loud, I'm like, yeah, of course you have to base your film on these particular characteristics in order to qualify as a genre. I have a lot of respect for people who just go completely experimental like David Lynch and, you know, people who just explore film for what it can do and what it can be 
and not really try to be anchored down um, by genre and, and can even, you know, make reference to it in a way that that's, that's the highest goal, but I, I can't do that. I, and that's not the direction I want to go, but through experimental filmmaking, I know this is what we're talking about, but through experimental filmmaking, people look at experimental films and use them oddly enough to tell very conventional stories. You look at what Soderbergh does. Steven Soderbergh makes reference to British and French new wave films in these very formulaic films all the time, you know, he, and, um, and I think a lot of directors, they're always stealing from each other, you know, um, and a lot of artists do that too. Yeah. Artists, coaches do it all the time, man. Um, like even Steve Kerr admits for the Golden State Warriors, he's like, dude, I'm not, I'm not designing my own plays. I'm just seeing other plays that I like. Wow. Remembering them. Oh dude. It's yeah. It's, it's very rare to be 100% unbiased or uninfluenced, right? I mean, you're just naive because if you're growing up, I'm imagining you're, you've watched films before you got into films. Before you go to film school, you've probably grown up and you've watched a film as a 10-year-old. You've gone to the movies. So you're getting ideas, even if it's on a subconscious level, right? You're being influenced by what you enjoy. So why wouldn't it come out? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I just writing something down. The I, I think that one of the things about filmmaking, and you know, we don't know the future of of film as we know it, movies, cinema, whatever you want to call it, because there's a lot of competition for how people are going to watch it and what's next, and you know, will people have the attention span for two-hour films? I believe that'll always be around. I'm not sure. Oh, dude, I think it's going to be craved. I'm so fucking over series, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I want a story to end. I'm tired of you dragging (laughs) me along for 40 episodes. Can can I get to the end of my plot, man? Was he arrested? Is he alive? What the fuck's going on? I want that closure. I have enough uncertainty in my life. (laughs) I want closure. And I think a lot of people are there where they're like, I don't, I don't want to spend, I don't want to invest 22 hours and five seasons into a character. I want to get to know you. I want a one night stand. I want to get to know you. It's like Tinder, right? Like films are becoming Tinder. I just want to hook up with you for the night and then <laughs> see you. Maybe I'll give you a call back in a couple of months if I need it again. If I need that emotion and experience again. Sequel, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the original. You're just like, you know what? That was a really good Friday night. Felt good. You know, let me let me call that back, and you like rewatched The Fugitive, and you're like, "Wow, that's a really neat, um, it's a really good film. I don't mind." What was it for you? Do you remember the first film that really had an impact on you? Oh shit! I don't know. I, in your professional opinion, should I edit out this think time to make it, or no, does it I add to the drama? Because I don't have a good answer too, but I, I I'll tell you one. Maybe this will spark it. For for me, you know. I didn't really, when I was really young, I didn't like going to the movies because my parents and my brother loved going to the movies and I kind of liked it. And the movies I liked were not what necessarily they would see. There'd be dramas. So I, I first didn't like going to the movies until my brother took me, we took a trip to New York City. I grew up in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. It's a college town, but it's kind of out, you know, it's, it's rural. And the students aren't there. It's a small town. So we would come into the big city, had an impression on me when I was about seven years old. We come up a lot. My dad's from the city. 
but still it was, you know, that in its own right kind of had an impact on me, but he took me to a theater that's no longer around called the Zigfield theater. People would know the Zigfield cause they had the biggest screen in the city and I'd never seen anything like it. And they were doing a revival of the 1968 film, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, a space odyssey. Hmm. I hadn't heard of it. I didn't know what to expect. The only reference I had was star Wars, which I liked. And I, had the toys, you know, so I, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So this was like mind blowing experience to see something on a screen that big, first of all, with that scale and this in some ways experimental storytelling. Hmm. And I remember there was an intermission thinking, what, why are we going to the lobby? Is the film over? Right. And my brother who's eight years older explains things to me that you know, first of all, it deals with evolution. What is, you know, I had an idea what that was. I didn't really understand it to see it kind of traumatized was interesting, but he also explained that there's a director and what he was doing and what he was trying to say was there were decisions being made and that had an impact on the experience of seeing something Ah. that was, I thought purely cinematic and at seven years old, that that's something I always draw from, you know, like that, that's what cinema can be. That can be uh, have a lot of different levels to it, and I think that the of all the you know art forms or entertainment um, uh, uh, venues or types, cinema is the most immersive. And hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe social media, maybe video games are more immersive. But for me, yeah. it's the most immersive and suggestive um, thing, and that's what I want to keep continue you know, aiming to make more and more movies. You know, yeah, you're definitely wrong about that. No, I'm just kidding. Well, that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? It was like, no, you're completely wrong with your life and philosophy. Um, so which is most of more Grand Theft Auto or... Uh... Yeah, right? So dude, and honestly, it, th- this is amazing that you bring that up. For So yep. for me, it was Super Mario 3. And I'm sitting here thinking in my head, entertainment. I go games, books, music, TV. Those are the four. Right. Games comes first. No, no. Well, because you had mentioned Grand Theft Auto. I just put games. I didn't put them in any yeah. particular order. But Well, it's an art form. I mean, it, the, what they're doing in in video games is cinematic. Oh, it's and insane it's how they put the story together. It's just incredible. But what I'm saying about myself, and you're almost like a psychiatrist at this point. And I wonder if I just needed this. Did you sense that I needed to express this? I don't have a film. I have a game. I have a uh. book. I have music that like vividly I can be like, I can almost bring myself back to the spot of my interaction with the medium. What's I, the book? I don't have a movie. Um, Animal Farm. Wow. Animal sure. Farm. Eighth grade, I discovered Animal Farm and I realized how easy it is to become powerless if you're ignorant. Yeah. Whoa, that's... Yeah, I, I discovered on the library, there's a fucking pig on the cover. You, they start talking. You're like, dude, this is trippy as hell, you know, and you don't think anyone read it. So I was trying to be like the cool kid that can now talk about something that other people wouldn't know. And Did it's you a read- sh- go, well, go I'm, it's a short book. You can read it fairly quickly and you don't get all the concepts. There's some words in there that I still to this day can't define. Do you recommend it to your students? Oh, so dude, I've read it with I have a 10 year old daughter. We read it this summer. I read that in the giver with her. I'm like, so, you better fucking learn that 
learning matters <laughs> unless you want to be manipulated. Like you better learn how to question shit instead of, and get to the why and think on a totality and not even just believe information. It has nothing to do with like Trump and fake news and all that shit. Cause animal farm clearly Orwell has been talking about that for forever. Do we trust information that's coming to us? And I don't know what that says about my personality, but it, it it's very interesting to me to make it about me, which I, I guess I don't like doing, but I do apparently that I don't have a film. I like TV show. I would have said saved by the bell would be like the influential influential, right? Like growing up, you come home, you're chilling, you're grabbing your after school snack and you're watching saved by the bell. And you're like thinking, am I team Slater or team Zach? Right? Like, like who, who do I want to be? Don't even nah, Love Slate. I I like Zach, but I aspire to be Slater. I think because I was always skinny. And I'm like, dude, I just want to be the dude that can kick ass. I don't want to be the like dude that always manipulates and gets in trouble. Um, but yeah, like I don't have a film. And I wonder what that it'd be interesting if you asked that question. Most people don't have a film. You, really? Yeah. Really? Wow. Well, yeah, I'll ask ask the question again, what if what's your guilty pleasure film? And they'll say, Oh, right away it's this. Huh. But most people don't have a film. And, and the best answer I ever heard was, my favorite film is the last good film I saw. Yeah, that right? Was, you have recency bias. There's, you have recency bias, right? There's not yeah. one that like sticks with you that is your North Star of, this is my film. I, you can almost be like, yeah, Shawshank Redemption. You know, just yeah, to like, because yeah. everyone says that kind of a thing as a clock godfather, right? You're like, oh, that was, but no, I, I wow. That's Maybe a... it's because you you think about it like, oh, if it's my favorite, I would have to watch it again and again. And maybe there's something restrictive about one film and it's not a book, you know, it's not. But yeah, surprisingly, most people don't don't have a, a favorite film or if they do, it's maybe something that, you know, it's they don't want to let everybody know it's their favorite film because it's enjoyable. And that's what films are supposed to be. And not every Corn. film has to. Most people in their mind just go to porn initially. <laughs> they don't want to admit it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what? Actually, if I had to put one on there, now that I'm thinking about it, and it's definitely not porn. Um, a Christmas story. Because it's almost like what? that traditional thing where you watch it and it sets that tone of, oh, it's Christmas. And you can remember sitting with, like, I can remember sitting with my dad and not understanding why the leg lamp mattered. Cause I hadn't hit puberty. You're like, why is this such a big deal? You know? And then like you watch it later and you discover all the innuendos that as a kid, you went over your head. Oh yeah. Right. You know, so every year that would be something, a kind of a touchstone for you every year. Exactly. It, see it, it, in it, light. it brings you home and then it's played every year. Like they'll do the 24 hour binge. So you're constantly reminded and you can catch scenes. It's very, it's very scene oriented where you don't have to watch it beginning to end. You can click in at 45 minutes and you know where you're at. You look forward to things. You know, you so want. Is Fragile your favorite scene or it's... do you like hung uh, frozen to the flagpole scene, which do you um, have a favorite? You shoot your eye out. I, I like when the dude curses, Ralphie, yeah. Ralphie curses. <laughs> and it, it, oh, yeah. the only reason is because like for the first 20 years, I'm like, what the fuck was the curse? Yeah. <laughs> What was the curse? What was the what curse? Okay, you said that. Um, no, but for me, it would be the bunny because I think that was my first time judging another person and being like, what a bitch. <laughs> and I might have been 10. I'm like, yo, 
if my mom would tell me to wear that onesie, because I think I was like similar to his age, I think I'd be like, man, fuck no. Like, I'm not, I'm not putting that shit on. I don't care. Ground me. Take my presence. I'm not mocking myself. It's such a little brother thing to do. Just go with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or the, when he's all poofy, the other, when the little brother like falls and he's like, can't put his arms down, you know, the Simpsons made fun of it and stuff like yeah, that. Older brother, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But man, it's, um, yeah, maybe that would be the film. The more I think about, but I've really got to force it. Like all the other ones, man, just pop. Yeah. You know? Huh. Good question. Good job for you. Good question. All right. Thanks, Sean. Um, I'm, dude, you said this way back. You didn't want to direct nothing without initially. Maybe I shouldn't say you didn't want to direct. You you questioned whether you should direct nothing without you. That's interesting to me. Oh, sorry. I always wanted to direct it, but not shoot it. Being director of photography, meaning operating the camera. Oh, <clears throat> I always, okay. I always thought I would hire somebody to do it, and on my first film, American Chain Gang, which is a documentary, I didn't intend to shoot that either. I, I had someone in mind who was a cinematographer who at the last minute wasn't available. So I, I had to shoot it myself. And, um, and in a way, both of them, like you, you're just more flexible when you're shooting it yourself. Uh, it's one less conversation you, you need to have. And, a lot of the television work I've done, I shoot, I, I'm operating camera too. So it um, <clears throat> kind of frees you up and you can also figure out, you know, you, you put the camera in place right away, you, you know what lens you want and you can, you can go. So it also helped us get through a pretty ambitious shooting schedule under, we got in, got through it under budget. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious why you would do it any other way, just so you can step back and go bigger picture and notice other yeah. things. Well, there's a lot of good reasons for it, uh, and maybe on the first film, it was the right way to go. I, I like shooting. I just like that experience. But when you're concentrating on the photography, you have to split your brain between that and directing your actors uh, and managing okay. the set. When you have a camera and a viewfinder in front of you, you have to put it down to have the conversation with the crew and the actors. Um, and you got to change gears quickly. Um, that's one negative. The other thing is with a great, with a good, even a good director of photography that you click with, you really have to click with them. And there are some directors that work with one, they call them DPs, director of photography exclusively is that you have the shorthand, you communicate well, and they concentrate on the photography. You pick the angles, you work with them, but beforehand, you watch films, talk about referring to other films, you watch films that you want the film to look like, and you talk and you watch them together and you talk about, okay, what are the setups here? How was this lit? Maybe what filter do they use? Like all these kind of stuff. Oh, wow. They can focus on the technical stuff and the artistic stuff of how to, because lighting is, is an art form. Um, how you set the lights and what mood it creates psychologically and, and, all that stuff is cinematography is its own art form. And when you have somebody who's focusing on that, it, it adds um, another layer to your film. Jesus, and dude. essential one, people would say, too. Yeah, now that you've broken that down for me, like, is your brain just fried after a day if you're in charge of cinema? How come I can't even say that? Cinema photography? Yep. That can't be right. Um, yes. 
You're fried, Sean. Absolutely. And then how do you get up the next day to do this again? And then the third day and then the fourth day, because you're talking about like getting under budget. Like you got to wrap stuff up every day's our dollars, right? Yeah. I, well, um, and then you also have to, you, you're also the leader of the team. So you also have to, um, you're, when you show up on set, you, you set the tone for everybody else. Oh yeah. So right. If you're tired or frustrated. You, you'd be surprised how quickly you see that reflected in the rest of the team. Oh, dude, same thing as again, it, coaching me as a professional middle school basketball coach. Um, but yeah, yeah. You, you, I mean, you set the tone, any boss, does, any good boss of an organization does. Yeah. Um, so you just right. Red Bull or are you on all sorts of amphetamines? Do you have, what's your addiction? Who's your dealer? No, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. <laughs> I, I've been reading dope sick, so I don't know why, but I'm super into drugs because that's what I've been reading, not doing just reading. <laughs> but yeah. How do you get the energy up, man? Adrenaline. It's not good. It's probably not good for your health. It's just caffeine and adrenaline. And, um, but you know, it is, it is, like a drug, there are highs that you have, and the high you have, the excitement of getting everything in place, and when, especially when you're looking at the monitor, even if you're, I mean, if you're filming it, it's even higher, high, when you see everything come together in front of you, that's a rush. It's calming, and it's exciting at the same time. There's nothing like it. You know you got the take. You know the performance is there. You know, you have it lit, you know, you have it framed and you're telling a story and you're seeing it unfold in front of you. You got it. It's like, that's, uh, uh, worth it. It's hunting, right? It's like you've, you've made, I'm a vegetarian, so maybe hunting is not the right uh, analogy, but it, you, it's the kill it's yeah, the thrill yeah. of, you know, of getting, getting what you've been hunting after the scene, the shot, you know, the sequence, you see it come oh, and a new idea that came from looking at something a different way. You know, if you watch, um, there's some documentaries on Stanley Kubrick and, and you can see him is particularly, they shot a lot of behind the scenes stuff of sh the shining. Oh, <clears throat> you really? can see him line up a shot that you see in these scenes, you know, when Jack Nicholson comes to the door and starts smashing him down the door with the ax, right? Talk you can about see iconic. him get the shot. He goes down low with an Aeroflex says, Hey, change the lens. You can see him like, Oh, let's try it this way. But don't, you know, you, and you could see like, wow, that just happened right there. And if you can ever have a moment like that, that's a rush on. It's pretty exciting. That's, um, wow. Interesting that like, that is the hunt, but it again, makes so much sense because dude, like th that face coming through that wood for that not to be planned, but for you to feel like you, it's almost instead of like hunting, like discovery could be even, yeah. I just fucking found the lost temple. Right. And you're like, Oh my God, this is going to kill. Oh yeah. I could. Okay. I could definitely understand that adrenaline. I now I got, it's completely off topic. Um, vegetarian. Why, why, why? Why would you do that? You're, you're so good at this. You know the right questions to ask, and it's an embarrassing story. I, I, how did you know to answer ask that question? Um, for my pure know. hatred of um, herbivores. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you a vegetarian? No, dude. Um, so I've joked around with this. I watched, um, and it goes back to Joe Rogan's podcast. Everything always yeah. goes back to Joe Rogan because I'm a middle aged white male, right? 
So he had on, there was a dude, I believe it was Game Changers that had a Netflix series about, I believe it was straight vegetarian, maybe veganism. Yeah. was talking about how great it does for your body. So I hadn't watched that, but I did hear a guy come on to Joe Rogan's podcast and shit all over the guy who made Game Changers. So I'm like, oh yeah, man, like fucking vegetarians. We hate them. Like I'm hate vegans, hate vegetarians. They're idiots. They don't understand. Well, then the very next episode, the dude who made Game Changers comes on and demolishes the dude who shit on him about Game Changers. So then I watch Game Changers and like I almost, it was almost like converting from like Catholicism to Hinduism. I was like ready. I was ready to go vegetarian, dude. I'm like, this makes so much sense. He broke it down, the blood stuff, the the eating, the, the even the way my teeth are made, I'm made to crack nuts and gnaw. I don't have 38 canines, right? Like I'm not meant to rip meat. But then I just couldn't do it. Fucking love you chicken. You know, I had, uh, uh, we had uh, lunch delivered on a shoot the other day and I thought I was eating a tuna sandwich. I eat fish. So I'm not really a vegetarian. I eat fish and eggs. Is that a, a, pisco, is that a pesco? Piscopalian? Te- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the tuna sandwich I thought I was having was a chicken salad sandwich. So oh. I, the first time in like over a decade, a couple decades, I had meat the other day, Sean. So it's funny you should ask about that. So I'm going to label you as a meat-eating vegetarian because any good vegetarian <laughs> would have told you would have told you you needed to go self-induced vomit right there. I, I should have, right. I, if I had time, I would have considered it, but we had to get back back to it. So yeah, an accidental omnivore maybe might be good. Oh, think fuck. About that. Dude, you are a writer. I love it. God, accidental omnivore. Um, <laughs> so stupid. You, I, but dude, I love it. I, I love, I don't know if you look at any of the titles. I always just try to throw one or two subtle th- references that are abstract, right? Like you'll be director of blah, blah, blah. And then like at the very tail end, it's like accidental omnivore or, <laughs> you know, and like, right? Like occasional polygamist. And you're like, what? Why would you call someone that? And then you get in there and you're like, oh, right? Um, and then you can discover why that title, why that person is labeled in the description. I try to I'll do try that. to give you a better hook, but that's a good one. Yeah, dude, accidental omnivore, um, I, I love. Did you, could you feel... Aside from the guilt and remorse for taking a living thing's life, could you feel like a physiological difference in your body or like whatever, 20 minutes later, you can kind of like forget? Well, I didn't. I always thought I would get sick uh, after that, but I didn't. I just, we just, we were such a tight schedule. I didn't have time to think about it other than right. this is horrible that it just happened and uh, it hasn't happened in a long time, but I just had to keep moving. What, what got you there? To become vegetarian. It yeah, was a girl, so, wasn't it? It was a girlfriend. Uh, I remember I was uh, 14. That's, I was on a plane. I met this girl who was 16. She was a vegetarian. You didn't hear me, did you? Like 20 seconds ago, I said, what made you a vegetarian? It was a girl, wasn't it? It was a girl. <laughs> yeah. And she said, she, that's right. She said, I'm a vegetarian. I, I looked at her sideways like, what? How could you not eat? cheeseburger you know why yeah. why would you do that so it, it just kind of planted a seed in my head and when i was 16 i said it, i said to myself i'm gonna try this at 16 i don't know why I picked that age but yeah I, I did it and i i stopped eating meat and then on my 18th birthday we were <laughs> we were all um camping <clears throat> and uh the next like i'm morning my 
18th birthday, they were making bacon cheeseburgers. Oh. So I went back two years. I was eating meat. And I don't I don't know what it is. I, maybe it was just in my head. I felt there was a difference in my energy level. It could be nonsense. You, you but wonder, I just right? How much today, is like I feel a better when I'm not eating meat. But I eat fish, so that's not – maybe it's a cop-out. I just love – seafood is – you're from Delaware, right? Yep. Well, it's kind of hard to give that up. I, yeah, I, to be honest with you, I'm one of, I guess, a Delawarean. Like, I look at crabs like cockroaches. I don't fuck <laughs> with them. Maryland, man. yeah. I don't fuck with them. Like, I just, like, <clears throat> they're dirty. They're bottom feeders. Shrimp, I can get down with a little bit, but then I get into, like, what it's almost like how some people look at swine as, like, they just seem unclean to me, you know? Um, no judgment, no shade. I almost wonder now if we could be, like, recovering. Again, because I'm reading Dope Sick. Like, are you a relapsed vegetarian? Are you a recovering omnivore? I like the accidental omnivore, but I, I think I had an episode, you know, just, uh, just, uh, a, relapsing yeah, relapsing carnivore. <laughs> um, and I fell just off the fell off, fell off the veggie stand, <laughs> fell off the farmer stand. <laughs> um, I want to ask, ask, because now we're completely off topics, although there is no real topics. You had said you'd come to Rehoboth. A while back for a vacation yeah, yeah so uh i actually was born in maryland in okay. easton maryland oh, no way. my right. parents were professors at a small college there i don't think it exists anymore but <clears throat> they got used to you know delmarva being an area that had a lot of nice beaches and right. there's no beaches in west virginia where i grew up so we would go to rehoboth okay and how long ago was that 80, 70s and 80s. Stop, dude. I moved down here 96. When's the last time you came back before I? Maybe sometime in the 90s. Oh, yeah, dude. So you haven't been here. It's, no. It's fucking amazing, man. All of a sudden, like, you're three-laned highways, and we got all sorts of franchises, and it's the boom and the lack of country. It, it's It's so urbanized that it's almost sickening for the people who have been here a while in the summer. Like, like, like literally if you go to the beach in Rehoboth and people leave, it's like a fucking city street on the beach. There's just trash everywhere. Yeah. yeah it was getting in the way. It was, it was overwhelming. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. When we would go there. It would just be like kind of a scene. Dude, it's amplified like crazy. All the majority of cornfields are all getting developed and whatnot. So you get all these extra homes, you have the townhouses, people from cities like New York and, Baltimore, DC, Philly, they can afford a $300,000 condo. They really can. And they buy them and they come down for the summer and it's just dense as hell. I, um, damn, I didn't know that. That's hilarious. That's so funny that like not knowing that we would both have that weird Rehoboth connection or no, I shouldn't say <laughs> weird, but like, it's weird how life works like that, man. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Small world. No doubt. Well, Zachary, I'm going to assume, and I'm, I, it's amazing we didn't actually get into a ton, ton of um, your films, although we got a little bit of it. I'm running a little short on time myself, but clearly, yeah. dude, I could fucking, we could easily crack five hours, I think. Um, hey, that's a compliment. Thank you. Right. Do you know how the podcasts end? The lat is it my first, I think it's my See, first time I ever... No. So if you don't get it right, you don't get shout outs on future. So shout out to Kristen who knew shout out to Eric who knew and shout out to Jeej who knew you blew your chance. I'm sorry, my friend. 
first. <laughs> you're looking. I can tell you're looking. <laughs> what is it? First. Uh, first time I ever. You understand the concept. Ever, you just don't notice. Yeah, I, I, I came prepared. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Go oh. ahead. What did I what did, what did, what did I get wrong? Nothing. Oh, all right. So then I'll set it up in this manner. Maybe I'll give you a shout out if I feel some pity for you somewhere in the future. <laughs> That's fair enough. Zachary, let me get your best first for last. We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. Damn it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, Sean. I... I, I have three. I have three choices for you. Oh, anyone ever done that before? Um, couple times. Yeah. Okay. All right. Damn it. Yeah. Thought I'd be the it's first okay. on that. Okay. I, here are three subjects. The first time I ever called into a radio show, <laughs> which was huge back in the day. Yeah. Huge back, then, back, back in the, the day. day. Radio shows. To get were, on the air, FM man. Too. Friday night, like that was it. It was a Friday night. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> First and last time I used a megaphone to, uh, to communicate loudly. And the last uh, possibility is the first uh, job I had as a, as a paid for uh, as a producer. Which one do you want to hear? Man. So it's the getting to know you pod. And I don't, although I do enjoy those books where it's like, if you want the character to go into the cave, turn to page 48. If you want the character to hop on an airplane, um, let me see. How do I ask about this? So clearly you're kind of goofy. You're a vegetarian. Yeah. You're a little bit nerdy. Yep. Right. But at the same time, very down to earth, very go with the flow. You're not fucking uptight. Right. Try not to be. Which one of those will reveal another part of you? What will allow us to connect on a spiritual level? On another oh, plane. None of them. None of them. They're, they're all goofy <laughs> and ridiculous. Sure. Well. Um, then which one is most embarrassing? Oh, okay. Uh, radio show. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> and and I have the other two. I'm floating them out there because if you ever if you like this story, then the other two maybe there'll be an option. Uh, you'll think maybe I, I want to get Zach back for for these other two stories. <laughs> That was a whatever. Okay, radio show. Uh, so I had an older brother I was talking about who brought me to the movies, always teasing me. Maybe I don't know if you have an older sibling. Um, I do not, but I've I'm I get teased very often, which leads to my yeah. loneliness and two hours of searching <laughs> of how hashtags work out. <laughs> well, you mentioned basketball coaches, and uh, I grew up in a college town, and I lived for the basketball team. And the coach back then was Gail Catlett. And okay. Gail Catlett had a call-in show on, uh, I think it was WCLG in Morgantown. <clears throat> and I would listen to the show every week. And I would listen to it. And I didn't completely understand basketball and everything. But I would uh, listen in. And I, I, I would call in, try to get on the show and ask a question. And I, did, and I remember my dad and my, my older brother prepared some questions for me. So I would be prepared. I was really excited about this. <laughs> But my brother was a prankster, so oh. he would pick up the phone while I was holding to get on the line and act like he was Coach Catlett, <laughs> and then ask it, and then answer like, and then throw in something like, you know, you know, why aren't you eating your vegetables or something ridiculous or like, you gonna take the cat, you know, did you clean up after the cat or something? Just and I would be so mad because I would devote all this time and read these questions nervously. Wait, so, this happened uh, multiple times. 
Like you yeah, fell I mean, for I this. Yeah, I was a sucker. I, I, yeah, I was, <laughs> I would fall for it. So, and, but the thing is the process was you would call and you'd wait and they pre-screen you. Right. And then you would, you would, you would, you would say, here are the questions I'm going to ask. And, you know, and then they, then they, they, you'd hold and say, wait for, so I knew the whole process. Right. So I call back in, I was so mad. My brother had done this to me. So I call back in immediately. I hear, welcome to the coach Catless show. What's your question? And so I said, I, yelled at my brother, Mark, stop it. <laughs> stop doing this. You keep doing this. I'm really mad. I know it's you. And my brother runs down and says, you're, you're on the air. <laughs> and I hear coach Catlett saying, Oh, hello. Who's, you know, who's Mark. <laughs> and I, and I'm so beat red. And I said, Oh, Oh, oh you know, it's my brother. And I explained the whole thing. It was hilarious. <laughs> so, um, Coach Catlett was very graceful. He answered the questions. He asked how old I was. He said he had a daughter that age who I went to, later went to high school with. And, uh, oh, no way. First time we ever called in. Yeah. Dude, talk about a weird little like connection, right? Yeah, well, like, it's a small town, but yeah, it's a weird connection, right? Exactly. Right. Anyway, I, I really uh, never forget that <laughs> experience, as you can understand. Is it? Yeah, and it's funny that the – because like he can't see you, right? But the embarrassment of public shame – and it's not like – it's an on-demand thing where people are going to the website to yeah, then right. play or post on social media and you're going to go fucking viral, you know, right. like, but at the same time, that's your everything in your head. I'm sure you're imagining the whole world is listening. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. The whole world. Right. <laughs> and you, you know what? Actually, you've made me think of two things that I feel children are missing out on that were awesome by your brother being able to pick up the other landline and kind of fuck with you. Like yeah. that, that can't happen anymore. Right. With cell phones. Like you don't have five right. lines in your house where you can start to deceive in, in an instance like that. Yeah. And the other thing is the crank call caller ID ruined just being totally. able to call someone and completely screw with them. The stupid voices, the weird numbers pretending to be someone else. Yep. Like just sure. missed out. I don't know if it's, um, clean fun, <laughs> but you look back at it as clean fun. Yeah. God, Zachary, this was fucking awesome, man. I, hey, Sean, I, thanks for having me, man. That was that was great. I really no, yeah, and I'm um, I'm a I, I can't I guess for um, my official work purposes I cannot disclose what time it is. I can only say for liability issues I um need to get to work. I feel like I should have started this thing two hours earlier. Um, but dude, I I loved it. So for people looking to support you in ways. Your films that are on Amazon Amazon Prime are? Uh, the documentary is called American Chain Gang. Fucking we awesome, man. I'm sorry to cut you. I asked you to talk and then I cut you off like a dick, right? I'm sorry. But the prison, like the prison stuff is more relevant now than ever. And I was amazed yeah. that you shot it so long ago. And yeah. I had no idea that shit was happening, dude. Like yeah. you watch that and your mind will be blown that talk about systematic injustice. How has that shit been going on for fucking decades? It is. Uh, well, if you uh, watch the film, we have a new ending. It has an extended cut where we um, we first played the film at South by Southwest and did the festival circuit. And we had a new distributor and we had an opportunity to have a new ending where the 19-year-old, one of the inmates we followed, who's now in his 40s, yeah. talks about his experience on a chain gang program, prison forced labor program. 
on a program that was designed to put him on the straight and narrow and have an impact. He talked about the real impact it had on him. And talk about a change in articulation to hear him speak when he was in jail to where he is now. Like at least you left that completely fucked up situation, seeing how those people were treated. You felt it allowed you to feel kind of good that even the not, not that the chain gang helped, but at least he was able to make it to a decent life. That was, that was an amazing ending. Thank you. And, and it's, uh, it, it, restores your faith that people who no matter how lost they are can find their way. Right. Um, so that's on, that is on, uh, iTunes. It is on, uh, Amazon prime. Uh, you can find it in territories around the world. Um, <clears throat> if you like it, please, uh, rate and review. Um, if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's American chain gang. The narrative film of the suspense thriller is called nothing without you on Instagram. It's nothing without you film. Um, if you like it, rate and review on Amazon Prime and IMDb. Um, and, uh, and both of those are free watches. Like, I mean, you just, watches. if you have yep. Amazon Prime, man, it's the, the Chang Gang one is definitely thoughtful. The Nothing Without You, it's not like you're going to get freaked out, but it is cool ending that I don't, that I didn't suspect. And it's just neat to see this MacGyver develop, man. It really, it, it's just a cool movie that will make you think about stuff. You're like, huh? Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. It means a lot. Yeah, and it, it to me, it's always cool to get to be able to just watch free movies. <laughs> now you're paying yeah. for it. You know, like you don't have to spend three bucks on demand to get to watch two decent. Um, I shouldn't say decent. I feel like that's under underselling them but two good movies that you'll that people will enjoy but the filmmakers whose films you watch on those platforms you're supporting them by yeah. watching them particularly if you like it and rate and review so thanks for letting your audience know about them yeah that's because you don't I, I i imagine most people really don't think about that i really don't think that that matters so much just clicking those couple extra buttons really makes a difference for people to try to get whatever um business cred not like street cred but you know get that next project going man all right zachary man and by the way i love the way who made the x in zachary was that a mom choice a dad choice maybe that'll be the last i'll make a deal if you have me back on i'll tell you all about that'll be the best first for last the first time i found out my name had an x in it (laughs) (laughs) all right man dude thank you so much for your time thank you so much for letting people get to know you i really appreciate it and um enjoy the rest of your day man you too, Sean. Thank you so much. This was great. Bye. On the subject I like most. Thanks to Zachary for coming on the Getting to Know You pod and giving so much of his time and insights about the movie industry. Or I guess television production, because let's not pigeonhole him. Be sure to get to know more about Zachary by checking out his websites and films, which we've mentioned, and links are included in the description. Thanks to AndrePsyche.com for sponsoring the Getting to Know You pod. Go to AndrePsyche.com for some trippy-ass merchandise that's going to be worth checking out. And if you have not already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the word of the pod. I made it words because I was so impressed with these. Advocation or swath. Advocation or swath are the words of the pod. 
post either both of those words on any of our social media or tag the Getting to Know You pod when you use it on yours to get a shout out on our very next podcast. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod, especially on Apple, but even if you listen on Spotify or your preferred podcast platform. You can also go to our Patreon to support the Getting to Know You pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests and want to support the hard work that our staff (laughs) over here puts in. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to get to know more consumers, consider sponsoring or advertising on the Getting to Know You pod because we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your business or brand. So if you're interested, just message us. We're out, EG. 500.